Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Sacramento Planning and Design Commission meeting uh, for July 27th. Uh, please silence any electronic devices you may have. Um, may we start with roll. Commissioner LaFosso? Here. Coville? Here. Hoffman? Here. Lindsay? Here. Farrell? Here. Lucky Bomb? Here. Rogers? Here. Juan Connolly? Here. Yee? Here. Ogilvy? Here. Bodipo Memba? Vice Chair Lucian? Here. Chair Burke? Present. We have a quorum. <laughs> Thank you. Just want to make a quick announcement. Item number three, the cabin is not on the agenda tonight. It's been uh, withdrawn. It's going to be renoticed to a later date. Um, also, I'm going to move the agenda around a little bit. We're going to take up the entertainment permit program before the Twin Rivers uh, item. Um, next, we're going to go to the consent calendar, approval of the minutes. Commissioner LaFalso. I move adoption. Second. Uh, perfect. Uh, we have a motion by Commissioner LaFalso, second uh, by Commissioner Farrell. Uh, may we take roll? Commissioner LaFalso? Aye. Coville? Aye. Hoffman? Aye. Lindsay? Aye. Farrell? Aye. Buckybaum? Aye. Rogers? Aye. Juan Connolly? Aye. Yee? Aye. Ogilvy? Aye. Vice Chair Lucian? Aye. Chair Burke? Aye. Motion passes. Next, uh, the director's report. Ms. Cosgrove. Thank you, Chair. Uh, I have no items for the director's report this evening. Fantastic. Uh, once again, item number three, the cabin's been re-noticed re uh, re uh, to a later date. Drawn and we're going to be re-noticed to a later date. We're going to go with the entertainment permit program overview. Um, Tina Lee Vaught, program manager, code compliance. Good evening. My name is Tina Levout. I'm the program manager with the Community Development Department Code Compliance Division, and we were requested to provide a presentation on the city's entertainment permit program. So I'm going to open with a quick video that gives an overview of our program, and then I have a PowerPoint presentation. Uh, you can see I'm, I came rolling strong this evening, and so we have a number of staff that are here to answer questions. So I'm going to go ahead and start with the video and then roll into the presentation. If you have questions, feel free to ask, and um, I may be able to answer them, or my team of experts will also be able to answer any questions you have. Thank you. 
So we produced that video because we thought it gave a really good overview of what we do. And again, probably the best way to describe our program is that we provide a safe, festive, and successful nightlife in the city of Sacramento. It's really a partnership that includes a number of different departments. And even though it's administered out of the Community Development Department, it really is a citywide program. And here just is a few of the folks that really contribute to the success of the program. So it's police, it's community development, it's fire. We work very closely with parking and the finance department. We also work very closely with our partnerships, like Downtown Partnership, Midtown Business Association, as well as ABC. So it's a very collaborative program. Basically, the city really encourages a nightlife, and so one of the things we found is that we really wanted to do it safely. One of the stories I like to tell is years ago I had a co-worker when I worked at the convention center, and he said Sacramento was a town that didn't know how to have fun. And really, in a number of ways, it didn't. First, it didn't really have a lot of opportunity to have fun. There weren't a lot of places to go, and there wasn't a lot of things you could do safely. We had a lot of problems with our venues. So the city adopted the entertainment ordinance to really have a better way for the city to have fun. And again, the team is very collaborative. We work very closely together. And permit holders are given a set of conditions to work with. And I like to say that our conditions are kind of like fingerprints. No two are alike. And I'll be going into more detail further in the presentation. So an entertainment permit, it's non-transferable. It stays with the business and the person. If the business sells, even if it stays the same name, they have to get a new permit. A permit is valid for about two years. But one of the things that we put in place recently was we have an extension. So if someone has a permit and they don't have any problems, they can actually get another two years. So the permit is actually valid for about four years. We also have a special entertainment permit, which is for smaller events. But for the most part, our permits have been the two-year permits. 
We have about 70 permits in the city of Sacramento. Most of them are downtown, Old Sacramento, and Midtown, but they're really located throughout the city. And one thing that should be noted is that permits are issued based on the activity, not the venue. So most people think it's just clubs and restaurants. We have retail stores that have entertainment permits. Harley-Davidson of Sacramento has an entertainment permit because periodically they have events. Manufacturers. We just issued a permit in South Sacramento to Omega. Omega is a manufacturing company off of Fruit Ridge. They did, earlier this month, a boxing match that was televised on HBO. So again, it's really based on the activities. Coffee bars, hookah lounges. If they have an activity that's defined by the code as entertainment, they have to get a permit. So you should have gotten a folder, and it has a number of different things in there. One of them is the map. So I gave you the map of the whole city. Uh, and I also included in this slide really a focus on Midtown, so you can really see the concentration in District 4 in terms of the number of permits that we have. And again, it's really based on the venue. So we have them um, on Del Paso with Stony Inn. We have El, uh, La Pontera in South Sacramento. We just have a number of different venues. And the diversity of our clubs is really great because we offer a lot of different activities that people can do. We do have some exemptions from requiring a permit. Um, one of the most popular is if you have a nonprofit event. The one thing with that is that it has to be a nonprofit event sponsored by the nonprofit for the nonprofit. Uh, we've had some people where, hey, Habitat for Humanity, here's five bucks. That doesn't count. Um, also, business districts don't have to get it, but they still have to comply with all the rules and regulations, such as noise levels and different things that are required by city code. So I want to talk a little bit about the application process, because as you know, folks come in here and they'll get a use permit, but then once they get a use permit, if they want to do entertainment, they come and see us. And so we have a really thorough application process because we want to make sure that anyone that's having entertainment is really responsible. So in your packet, I actually include the application packet. Uh, we do uh, information in terms of the applicant. We want to know what kind of business they're doing. We want to make sure that we have their ABC license. It's really critical that we have their ABC license because we can't supersede that. Additionally, we can't supersede anything that their use permit says. Uh, we've had folks come in thinking that, oh, my use permit says I can't have entertainment. I'll go get an entertainment permit. Doesn't work that way. If the use permit says no entertainment, they can't have entertainment. We also require property owner authorization because the property owner is always ultimately responsible. In addition to the information on the applicant, we also ask for information on their managers because we want to make sure that they have people on site that are responsible. Also, anyone that's an applicant or a permit holder and anyone that's a manager has to be cleared by police. So we also have police forms they have to clear with a live scan, and they have to be cleared by both the police department and DOJ, or the Department of Justice. So as part of our application approval process, again, it takes a village to run this program. And so we have a very significant review process. It's reviewed by code compliance. That would be code enforcement as well as zoning. Uh, police and fire will look at the application. We also route it to neighborhood services and the appropriate council member. We do site inspections by our building inspectors and fire. So with our building inspectors, they have to clear building. It's life safety, plumbing, mechanical, and electrical. If they don't clear that, we can't issue the permit. We also do noticing. So property owners within 500 feet get a copy of the application. Once we get a complete application, then the city has 60 days to make a decision. A complete application would be we have their ABC, we have their business operation tax certificate, they've cleared all of their live scan checks with police, um, They've paid their fees. 
they've cleared all of their building inspections and fire inspections. Once we get that, the application is deemed complete. Once their application is deemed complete and they get the permit, we have operating conditions. And these are really critical because this really tells them what they can do in terms of how they can operate. And we're very strict in terms of our conditions when they first open because it's really easy to kind of relax after we've seen them operate. But once when they first come in, we're going to be really tight. We're going to really make sure that we know these people and they can operate well. One of the first requirements is that they have to have an on-duty manager. They, again, have to be cleared by PD and DOJ. They have to be present whenever entertainment occurs. And here's something that sometimes people forget. They can't be drunk on duty. So they can't consume alcohol, and they have to actually be listed on the permit. So sometimes folks are like, hey, Bob's here. He's the manager. Well, they have to be cleared and actually listed on the permit before they can be deemed a responsible person. We also dedicate what type of permit they, uh, entertainment they can have. So some folks just have DJ and dancing. Some folks are just limited to live music. Um, a number of different things kind of come into play in terms of entertainment. Sometimes it's a neighborhood issue. For example, if they're close to residential, we might just limit them to live music because it might be a problem. Sometimes ABC limits it. We had one where ABC was very clear. It was live music only. No burlesque. No, no fashion shows. I mean, they were very detailed in terms of what they could require. We also limit days and hours because some folks have entertainment seven days a week, which allows them to operate, for example, if St. Patrick's Day is on a Tuesday. Uh, some folks, because of the restrictions with the neighborhood, they just might be limited to just weekends. So we really want to focus on the type of entertainment that they have in the days. Also, we have age limits. Typically, it's 21 and over after 10 p.m. Some of them are all ages. Ace of Spades, for example, is an all-ages venue. But when it's all ages, it's very strict. It'll be all ages, 21 up has to have a wristband. Um, sometimes we segregate. So age limits really something that we look at very closely. Security guards is also a very important factor. Pretty much everybody that has a, a permit with us has some kind of requirement for security guards. The minimum number is usually a ratio of about 1 to 100, but depending on what they're doing, that may change. Uh, we also sometimes offer a sliding scale. So, for example, trivia is a pretty low level, so we may not require the same number of guards as, like, full-out DJ dancing, getting the groove on. So we really try to make sure that we address that. Security guards have requirements. They have to have a valid ID and a valid guard card whenever they're on duty. They actually can't be armed because we don't like our security guards armed. The other thing that's really important with how we do our guards is that they're very responsible for making sure that they maintain order. Um, they have to patrol the lots. And one thing that's really critical is not just patrolling the lot that might be adjacent or owned by the business. If they know that they're next to the Bank of America and that their users, when they come to the club park in Bank of America's lot, they're responsible for going and checking and make sure that that lot is safe because they know their patrons use it. They're also responsible for making sure at the end of the night that their crowd disperses properly. So they can't just say, you know what, end of the night, don't have to go home, can't stay here. They actually have to make sure that people leave safely. So it's very important that they control their crowds. Also, permit holders, there's two different ways that they can have security guards. Some of them have their own guards, which are PPSOs, which are private proprietary security officers. They're their own employees that they hire, and they have a license with the state so that they can be a private security employer. They also have a list that's approved by the police department that they can choose from. Whether it's their own employees or from the list, that permit holder is responsible for making sure that those guards do their job and handle those crowds appropriately.
One of the things that we've recently added is scanners. So what you'll see in some of our bigger clubs is that they have ID scanners. Uh, one of the reasons why we added this is because we wanted to have just that extra layer of a little bit more safety. It's been a really good tool that we've used, and actually a lot of venues like it because it's given them good information on demographics. Uh, it has to be something that's approved by the police department, so you can't just go and, oh, there's an app for that, and get an app and get it. It has to be one that's approved by police. It has to be able to scan the ID cards. It has to be able to detect false IDs. Also, the double check, it's like, hey, I'm 21. My sister's 19. She looks like me. I'll go in and then give it to my sister, and she'll come in. These machines can detect that. One of the things that's also a great feature is a banned list. We had an example where we had one person that was at one venue, got thrown out, got banned, they went down to another venue and they were told, sorry, can't come in. And that's a really useful tool because it kind of keeps the trouble from going around to different places. Also, every patron has to be scanned. So, and it also includes the performance. So it can't be, hey, we're all with a band. Everybody has to be scanned that goes in. And this was really useful when we've had some incidents where there's been a crime committed and police has been able to go back in to see who's been in and been able to track down and made arrests. So it's been a really useful tool for us. Not every venue has it. Um, it we're really selective because it is expensive, but it's been a great tool for businesses and it's been a really great tool for the city. Occupancy is another really key issue. We work very closely with fire. Fire sets the occupancy, and over-occupancy is a huge concern. Um, I've been doing this since about 2009, and I think one of the few businesses that we've actually denied a permit to for a renewal had an issue with over-occupancy. Their occupancy was 299. I think they clocked in at like 550. So it was a really huge deal. So over-occupancy is a major concern for us. We also do litter which I think a lot of people think, why do you do litter? Well, if you're a neighbor and you really don't want to see everybody else's trash from the night before by your house. So businesses are required in the adjacent area to make sure that all the litter is picked up. Noise is another issue. It's a little troubling because our noise ordinance is a little outdated, but we do our best to try to measure noise and make sure that it doesn't interfere, interfere with neighbors. One of the things that we really like to try to do with noise is we try to get businesses to work with their neighbors and connect with their neighbors. Uh, one of the issues that we recently had was the May Building, which was a great project, but it moved in right across the street from some bars. And so we had some ongoing challenges where they were complaining about the bars. And they would talk to us, and we would talk to the business, but once we we actually had the residents talk to the business, the issue went away. And that's because the more they actually talk to each other, then they can address it that night. They can say, hey, it's loud. So noise is something that we're constantly trying to address. Um, also, just the permit has to be displayed. And they always have to have the current permit available and ready whenever someone comes and asks. One of the issues I want to discuss is permit modifications. And this is a really great example of how it's really a partnership. We allow permit modifications because we want our businesses to be successful. And we want is them the opportunity to modify their permits if there's some conditions that don't work. A good example is security. We kind of give it our best shot in terms of what we think they need for security. But sometimes people come in and they'll say, you know what, my occupancy is 250. I know I'm supposed to have two guards. On Tuesday night, I'm doing trivia. I got 50 people at best. It's really expensive to have two guards on a Tuesday night. So we may do a sliding scale, so then that way they don't have to have as much security if they have a smaller crowd. Or it just allows them to modify their business as the dynamics change. And so that's something that we try to work with them on. 
Again, I talked a little bit about the extension. This has been a really great tool because what it does is it rewards our people that do a good job. As I said, we have about 70 people that have permits. Um, I would probably say that at any given time we have about five, as I like to call, kind of nutting up, or five that aren't really behaving the way they should. So for those, you know, they might get a level C violation. And the way to think of our violations is it's the opposite of school. So in school, an A is great, a D is bad. It's the opposite in terms of code enforcement. If you're getting an A violation, you're really bad and you're going to get hit hard. Uh, so level D violations, which are kind of low level, don't preempt you from getting an extension. But anything that's a C or above, you won't get the extension. Now, people can renew, but they'll just get some stricter conditions by doing that. But it has been a great tool and a great motivator for people to kind of continue to do the great job that they already do. As you can see, we have the police entertainment team here. You can all in blue. You guys wave. They're there. So we have the police entertainment team, and they're really kind of the folks that are in the field kind of doing the job for us and monitoring. So they monitor entertainment. They issue the violations for noncompliance. Um, they coordinate quarterly compliance sweeps. So every quarter we have a team of people that go out. It's police. It's fire. We coordinate with ABC. We have code enforcement officers there. And we go out to venues and we check and we see how they're doing. And it's actually a really great opportunity for us to really get out and see what's happening when everything is going on. And it's a late night. So if you ever want to join us, we start about 8, you know, roll back in about midnight. Sometimes if you really want to have some fun, go out with the crew at about 10. They roll back in at 2. But you really get a chance to see what they do. Another really great tool that we have when we talk about how it's a collaboration is we have a quarterly pub, clubs, and bars training. That's a really great tool because what it is is every quarter we invite all of our permit holders to come and meet with us and we discuss a number of different topics. We've discussed active shooters. We've talked about um, how you do checking IDs. We talk about, you know, what fire is looking for. So it's a really great positive way for folks to interact with the city and learn more about what we're doing. They also learn from each other. When we did the one on IDs, it was so interesting to see one permit holder say, you know, I don't know how to pat women when they come in the club. How do you, you know, how do you do that? And instead of it being the officers telling them, this other club said, I can show you how I pat down a female patron. And so they, oh, come up here. And so they taught each other how you pat down a female patron. So it was a really good idea for them to work together and get different ideas. They actually work with our permit holders in terms of helping them figure out what kind of security systems they need. And they also do SEPTEB, which is crime prevention through environmental design. I got that right? Okay, thank you. And then the other complement to the police team is our business compliance team. So code enforcement has a business compliance section that enforces a number of different business licensing laws, including entertainment. So they're also responsible for the ongoing enforcement for the entertainment code. So it's kind of like police are the eyes, and then it comes to code, and then code is the one who will take a look at what the violation is and actually issue the violation. So they'll review what happened in the field. They'll issue the penalty. Um, they'll kind of work with police in terms of what's going on. Again, code participates in the quarterly compliance sweeps, and they also participate in pub clubs and bars training. That just kind of sums up what I was saying in terms of how we work. And this is a really good example. So it's not the greatest picture, but you can see from this club, this is the club that we ended up closing because that was pretty deep. And goodness knows what it smelled like in there. Um, but it's just, this is a really good idea. So no manager on duty, that's a really big one for us. If we roll in and there's no manager on duty, that's a problem. Um, not having enough guards. 
That's a really big concern for us, over-occupancy. Underage patrons, we had a club that fortunately closed on its own, but it was just amazing. We were on site, and they had someone 16 in the club, and we talked to the permit holder, and he was like, oh, really? 16? Okay. And just kind of wandered off. It was like, oh, all right, you're closed. Um, but underage patrons is a problem. Also, doors and windows open during entertainment. And some people would think, why is that a problem? Again, it goes back to noise. So if you have residences, it might seem like, oh, it's hot in here. Let's keep the doors open. But if you have an issue with noise, doors and windows being open during entertainment can be a really big problem. So what happens when we issue a violation? Um, there's different levels. Sometimes it's just a notice of violation, which is basically a letter that just says, you know, we're putting you on notice. Um, we can do administrative penalties up to $25,000. We can also do an administrative penalty and either a modification, suspension, or revocation. Um, for serious violations, it doesn't have to be that they've had something happen in the past. We can just go ahead and go straight to suspension or revocation. Um, for the most part, we really haven't had any serious problems. We've had, you know, we have had some incidents where there's been some shots fired. We've had some incidents where there's been um, people stabbed. But really, our clubs do an amazing job of running really safe clubs. And again, anything that's a C or above, which is $1,000 or more, will prevent them from getting the two-year extension. So this is a good opportunity to kind of talk to you folks about what's next. What we really want to see is that entertainment is really so much more than just the clubs that have permits. It's really about entertainment and nightlife. And what we really want to do is build an alliance of different stakeholders to have a really great, strong nightlife in the city of Sacramento. One of the things we've seen since Golden One has come on board is that there's really been a resurgence. I know that we've seen an increase in the number of permits that we're getting. I'm sure you guys are seeing a big increase in the number of bars and people coming in looking to get use permits. But we want it done correctly. And I think what we're trying to do is really reach out to all the stakeholders, this you know, board included, to really get as much involvement as we can to make sure that it's done right. Because what we want to do is really build our nightlife and entertainment, but not for the sake of neighborhoods. Or, you know, we want to make sure that they're safe. And again, we want it to be safe not just for the people that come and get entertained, but also for those people that work in those businesses. That's something that sometimes gets overlooked, that it's an industry, it's an economy. And you'd be amazed if you were to look at the numbers of the people at 10th and K, the numbers at night are more than the numbers during the day on a Friday. It's just a large number of people. So we really want to work on advocating that. So we also want to talk about hospitality zones, which you kind of might think of as more as mixed use. And it's kind of an area where everyone kind of thinks 9 to 5. A lot of people think what happens when people are working downtown. We like to think of the other 9 to 5, what happens at night. Um, a well-managed hospitality zone can really draw a lot of people not just living there, but coming in and spending money. So we really want to work on building really strong hospitality zones. We want to build areas where people want to come, where they want to shop, where they want to maybe go to dinner, or maybe then go and see a show, see entertainment. We don't want to just focus on millennials coming in. People my age still like to party and get their groove on occasionally. So we want to make sure that everyone has a place to come and socialize. But if it's poorly managed, it can be a drain on city resources and it can really hurt the economy. So what's next? I have this one up because I want to talk about one of the things we were fortunate to do. In your packet, there's a little information that talks about Sacramento being a sociable city. Uh, earlier this year, we had a team of people, and this is the team of folks that we brought with us. We were rolling deep that got a chance to go to Austin, Texas. 
excuse me. And it was great because we were able to showcase Sacramento. We showcased Sacramento alongside of Pittsburgh, Seattle, and San Francisco. So there were only four cities showcased and we were one of them. So I want to take the time to kind of highlight some of the folks from our team. So if some of our team members can just stand up, the people that went with us to, to Texas. Yeah, I'm making you guys stand up. So we have Sergeant Gigante. We have Bob Simpson, who's one of our permit holders. We have Camille Bazet, who's another one of our permit holders. Matt Ironman, who's with our, park, our parking manager. Christina Montanez. And by the way, when I talk about applications and all the stuff we do, when I say we, I'm really talking about Christina. She does all the real work, so it's really Christina. And then in the back, we have my boss, Carl Simpson, who's the code and housing chief. And so it was a really great opportunity to not only showcase Sacramento, but to really learn more about what other cities are doing. They talked about noise. They talked about planning. They talked about how cities have night managers that kind of handle what happens at night. And so it's a really great um, summit in terms of being able to not only share information, but to learn information. And with that, I would love to invite anyone on this commission who may want to join us. We'll be going back. It's in New Orleans. It's in February of 2018. Um, and again, the focus really started initially on public safety, but it's really expanded to really talking about how you plan. So if you look at the very first thing they have is plan for people. How do you plan for people in terms of entertainment? How do you assure their safety? And then how do you enhance vibrancy? And everything that this commission does really plays into that. So we would love to have a representative from this commission join us and really see what it takes to have a great hospitality zone and kind of take Sacramento to the next level. So I'm available to answer questions. Um, anyone that's here joining me is available to answer questions. So with that, that's the end of my formal presentation. Thank you so much, Ms. Levaut. Um, we have a couple of commissioners' comments and questions. Okay. Uh, before, um, also want to state that if anyone from the general public would like to make a comment, there's comment cards on the back for this item or Twin Rivers. Fill out a comment card presented to the commission secretary. Um, Commissioner Pluckyball. Thank you for thank you for a fantastic presentation. I just had a quick question on: um, Is there anything you can speak to? about what the city's doing to prepare for the legalization of marijuana and specifically is there anything that this committee should be commission should be thinking about uh, in terms of where we're citing those types of uses so i'm going to have carl simpson he's our code and housing chief and he's been working most closely in terms of the issues related to marijuana so uh, Carl Simpson, Code and Housing Enforcement Chief for the city. So right now we're not at that point in terms of, I think there's going to be a discussion that's going to come up regarding where people can actually do marijuana, lounges and that kind of thing. And I believe our, our uh, cannabis committee is actually working through that. In fact, I know they are, but we've not gotten to that point. So in the future you should probably hear uh, recommendations with regard to uh, what's going to be suggested with regard to those type of uses downtown. Chairman Emeritus Badipa, member. Uh, 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 Chair Burke, I'd like to respectfully allow uh, Commissioner LaFosso to speak. That's oh, all right. Forgive me, Commissioner LaFosso. Thank you, Chair and Chair Emeritus. Uh, sir, can I ask you to come back up? Actually, I just, I wasn't going to ask this question, but just uh, 
Is there a nexus between entertainment permits and the cannabis issue? I know you're, you're code enforcement. You're bigger than entertainment permits. But correct, correct. Is there a nexus? You know, um, that's a good question. Uh, I think that's part of the discussion that's going to occur. Um, and uh, like I said, the, the Cannabis Committee <clears throat> comes up with recommendations, um, and, and then it goes through Lawn Ledge and then to the Council for that kind of discussion. But that, that's going to be an interesting discussion. Uh, as we talk about cultivation right now, we're talking about different zones and, and certain requirements. Um, we've gotten through the cultivation permit. We've got several other permits that are going to go through Lawn Ledge and then be introduced to Council for a decision and further discussion. So in, the, so in the future you should hear, but I can't say definitively yeah. that, that that is part of entertainment. It kind of depends on what happens in the future with uh, the recommendation. Okay, maybe, maybe without bogging down on the process, you could get me a little substantive, Colonel. I mean, I, no one's having – I mean, I, is this the idea that if I, my, my uh, processing facility, I might want to use my conference room for an event? for the community and I might get bold and start realizing nobody needs a medical card anymore to, for me to serve some edibles there and you have to grapple with the intersection between uh, uh, cannabis edibles being the centerpiece of, a, of an event as opposed to the traditional model of alcoholic beverages being the is, is, yeah, is, that's, is this where and, we're going? And again you bring up some real tough questions. Um, from a policy perspective, I'm way low on the food chain uh, with regard to, to even commenting on that. Um, I'm sure that that probably is going to be a discussion that gets raised later on as they talk about um, what – so, for example, in Denver uh, was kind of the model that we looked at. One of the problems that they had was that they allowed marijuana, and uh, they said, well, you can, you can do it socially, but you can't do it in public. So they didn't provide a place for people to do it inside doors, so they had to come back later on and say, okay, well, we need to consider whether or not there is a nexus for entertainment, so similar to a cigar, a lounge, for example. Are we going to allow that? And I'm not sure what that they, they ended up with. I think that they did contemplate opening up specific lounges for that purpose, but I can't tell you whether or not that's the direction you know, we're going to end up going or not. Appreciate it. Okay, I didn't want to belabor the issue. I got to get the sense of the issues. I'm good topic. Thank you. I'm going to follow your chain of command and direct my remaining questions to Ms. Lee Vaught. Okay. <laughs> um, just a couple quick ones. When you listed the, the the five top violations, can you tell us which ones of those are A, B, C, or D? Which ones are A, B, C related? A, B. Or A, B, C. Your, your it, level of like, which ones would get me my permit revoked? Um, it actually depends. Well, over occupancy is usually a, a level C or above. Because when it's over-occupancy, it's really a gross over-occupancy. We typically aren't going to cite someone because they have, you know, even 50 people over. Usually it's because they have twice the occupancy that they're required to have. Um, also, sometimes it's a repeat offender. So if it's someone who historically, time and time again, they don't have their security, um, it might start off as a notice of violation. Then it might go, okay, now it's a 250. Okay, now we're going to $500. Okay, look, this is your third or fourth time not having an off, you know, a guard. You're going to 1,000. So it really depends in terms of what they're doing. So it's kind of frequency, but I would say probably the, the worst one is really the over-occupancy. Okay, appreciate What I'm hearing is that the frequency of prior offenses leads to the fine level, and the fine level pretty much determines the level of violation for renewal purposes. Correct. That, that's very helpful. 
do you all regulate sound levels, decibel levels? I, I know that we do things in conditions. I know about the city's sound ordinance. Is that something that you enforce, don't enforce, have your own rules on? I'd probably say that we try to monitor it, and it, sometimes it's difficult to enforce because, our, quite frankly, our noise ordinance is really out of date and really needs to be updated. So it's really hard to enforce it just because it's it's not the best tool. But we really do try to monitor it, so we really do try to go out and work with our businesses to make sure that they're very cognizant of the noise levels, and especially when they're close to residences. So we do try to monitor it the best we can. Appreciate that. Moving along, I, I think one of the reasons we all asked you to come here is we had an entertainment permit about a month ago, and you can appreciate that we, we get conditions and we have to grapple with context. And one of the issues we got fixated on was this issue that I, I very much appreciate that you raised about um, dispersing the crowd after the event, the litter in other environs. And w we got all in our kind of due processy property rights thing about how do we know if a person's loitering two blocks away at 2.30, whether that's really the responsibility of the entertainment permit holder because it's traceable or whether, you know, X number of styrofoam cups in the gutter that weren't there Friday, excuse me, Saturday evening at 6 p.m., but were quite prominently there 5 a.m. Sunday morning, two blocks away again can be. How do you, how do you guys deal with that? You know, we try to do our best to monitor. Um, we really try to make sure that we're open to complaints and different things that we get. And the conditions are a really good tool. You know, one of the things we found when we went back to Austin, Texas, is a lot of cities don't have the depth of the conditions that we have. So we use it to really address things. We've had venues, quite frankly, where you would think that littering, it's not one of our major conditions. But we've really, in some places, have really focused in and had to highlight that because we've had a neighbor that con was concerned about it. So it's a really great tool. So if we do have an issue, we can require them to clean up earlier. Uh, we can make sure that we're monitoring it. We can cite. I mean, it is a condition. And anything that's a condition, there are about 19 of them. Anything that's a condition, we can cite as a violation. So if there's an ongoing issue with litter, they can actually get an administrative penalty for not taking care of their litter. Um, again, we really try to work with folks. The publicism bars is a really great tool in terms of training them and training their staff in terms of what they're supposed to do in terms of like the loitering, um, the communication. One of the things that's great about having uh, the police team here, and I'm going to embarrass you guys, um, they do an outstanding job of facilitation. I think that the best job that they do in terms of not just enforcing the law is really facilitating and working with businesses that they understand what they do. They spend a lot of time actually training guards and going and speaking with business owners and making sure they know what their responsibilities are and giving them ideas. So it's not just telling them, oh, they're doing something wrong, but it's telling them how they can do something right. And so that's a really good tool. So for us, we really want to focus more on compliance than enforcement. So the way that we really make sure people do what they're supposed to do is to make sure they have the best information to do what they're supposed to do. So that's how we address that a lot more. So in terms of loitering, if we get a lot of complaints about someone and it seems like they're not doing a good job of making sure that they're addressing their crowds when they disperse, we don't go straight to, okay, we're going to enforce, we're going to issue violations. We go straight to, okay, we need to educate, we need to talk to them. Now, if they don't straighten up, it's a violation. But we really try to give them that opportunity to learn and understand what their responsibilities are. So apropos to that, so I'm, hypothetically speaking, a neighbor, and there's a bar a block, block and a half from me. 
And I'm convinced that the litter in the ground is a result of last night's event or that person yelling and screaming on the sidewalk on the side of my house is a patron. Sort of a two-part question. A, it's 3 in the morning on Sunday. What do I do? Do you guys answer the phone at 3 in the morning? And what do I do when the business owner says, you know what am I? I don't know what you're talking about. Um, I, I can tell you I'm not in the office at 3 in the morning. Um, <laughs> okay. I, Christina and I are home. Um, probably the best thing to do is to document and to let us know because we may not be able to go out that night, but if someone sends a complaint to our office, uh, we'll make sure that the team is aware of it and then they can go out and do it. The team also has an email, which is uh, eteam at sacpd.org. Okay. Okay, so they can also send an email to the team directly kind of stating that they're having problems and then the team will know next time they're out to go out and check it. So it's really important that people let us know if there are issues. That's one of the things we try to tell uh, residences and neighbors. Sometimes people wait until someone's coming up for renewal and then they're like, oh my God, they're horrible and they do this and they do that. Well, for two years we didn't hear anything from them. So we're thinking everything is okay. So it's really important that people as things are happening tell us because then we can address it with future conditions or we can make sure the team is aware and they can go out and work with that business. Appreciate that. I uh, hope sometime we'll get the email for that team contact. I forgot what exactly what you said. It seems to me yeah. something. Yeah, I can I can send that. I can have I can get that to Suzanne and she can get that to everyone. And I can also include it. I can update it in the PowerPoint presentation and I can send the PowerPoint presentation to everyone so you have that information. Appreciate that. Um, just so I can out Commissioner Pluckabom on controversial questions, and this is my last question. What's the ghost ship episode in Oakland? Kind of has has it influenced any of your safety checks or any of your approach to entertainment venues in Sacramento? You know, to be really honest, I think we've always been really good about checking. I mean, I think that we're obviously more aware because it's a bigger issue. But I think one of the things that makes our program really great is we've always been proactive. Um, I think that, again, one of the things that makes this a little different than most folks that issue entertainment permits is that we actually do on-site checks. So a lot of places just issue the permits and they don't have building inspectors going out. They don't have fire going out. So I think because we're so proactive, that really helps us minimize things being a problem. So I think, again, it heightens our awareness. Um, there are some places that kind of pop up a little bit more on our radar because, you know, we get information on what folks are doing and we follow up on it. But we've always been very proactive in our approach and how we address it. I know we had one venue um, that was uh, this Vietnamese community center, it may be familiar to you, um, where we had a very big electrical problem and we really had to go out and fix it. And if we had just been someplace where we had just said, oh, it's just a paper process, we would have never been aware of the severity of the electrical issue. And it was so bad, we opened a housing case, we made them fix it, they had fire issues. So again, because we have our proactive approach, we're really good at avoiding those kind of problems. And we do follow up. Um, there's a lot of you know, kind of follow-up that police does in terms of if they get a heads up on something. We had an event recently where I had an officer uh, follow up and say, hey, you know, did you guys get anything for this? No, and we were able to follow up and, you know, stop the event from happening because they didn't have a permit. So we do follow up on different leads that we get. So we're very proactive in our approach. Appreciate it. Let me just say in closing, I appreciate all the police officers you got to come tonight. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Commissioner LaFalso. Uh, Commissioner Bodiba, member.
Thank you, Chair Burke. Thank you, Chair Burke. Uh, first of all, a tremendous presentation. Uh, great information, both I think of value to us as a commission, but to the public. Um, I think Commissioner Lafasso, Lafasso mentioned before, this will definitely help us as a number of entertainment items come to us in the future. Uh, I want to specifically call out the entertainment team. I had the opportunity to ride with some of the folks on the entertainment team. Besides doing a great job of, of policing the streets, like you mentioned before, they do a phenomenal job of outreach to the, the business communities and the patrons. I got a chance to participate. They did a, a pre-breathalyzer test with some individuals at, at one point in time to let folks okay. know about uh, the dangers of being under the influence, how many drinks it would take to get to that point, that educational component, a lot of stuff that we don't see. I was really impressed by how they handled uh, some difficult situations later on in the evening. You're right, after about one o'clock, the city turns into a little bit different environment and they, they perform great. So I'm really impressed. We're lucky to have that team here in Sacramento. Keep up the great work. Couple questions. So you talked about security guards and the security guard cards and certifications. How about uniforms? Are there certain requirements that the city of Sacramento has in terms of uniform security guards uh, at, at clubs, bars, and establishments? Yeah, any guards that are used at a club have to be on the city's actual security guard registered list. And as part of being on that list, they have to work through the police department. And they actually have to provide their um, proof of all of their insurance. They have to have their uniforms checked. So yeah, so there's a number of different checks before they can get on the list. And it's really important because we've had some folks that are just like, hey, I got a friend, he does security. That doesn't work. So there's clearly a list and a requirement that they have to go through. Thank you. Uh, and I want to follow up on Commissioner LaFosse's point regarding the, the litter and the loitering. Um, because one of the questions that's come up to us is whether it's more, and again, I'm not asking you to answer it for us, but maybe get your feedback. Whether it's important to have a condition that clearly delineates the littering restrictions and requirements, or is it better to just for us to lean on the good neighbor policy? We've kind of have leaned both ways. From your perspective, is it helpful to have more prescriptive um, language as a condition in terms of being able to enforce things, or does a good neighbor policy give you enough standing to, 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 to enforce? Clear language is always really helpful. I can give an example of something that's not related to litter, but something else in terms of a use permit, what was kind of unclear. Uh, we had an applicant who came in, and as part of the presentation or part of their application, what they said is they were only going to do entertainment on the weekends. So that's what they said. That was what was in the staff report. When they actually got their use permit and the conditions were issued, that limitation wasn't there. So when they came to get their entertainment permit, we wanted to limit them to the weekend because we did see the staff report, and they're like, well, my use permit doesn't say that. And then I had to say, well, we can say that. We don't have to follow the use permit. We kind of like to have that as a guideline, but we can limit you to the weekends. You got the weekends. But it's really helpful that if there's something where you're thinking that's where you're leaning toward, to specify that. So if there's something that is a concern that you want to clearly delineate, if it's in the use permit, that really helps guide us. So we don't want to supersede what you folks do in terms of limitations. So if you're saying that they have to do something related to litter, sometimes we even put that in our conditions. For example, if ABC says they're limited to live music only, and the conditions will say, in accordance with ABC license 47, da-da-da-da-da, you're limited to live music. So the more that we can be consistent with whatever another body has said, that really helps us. Thank you. This is really helpful for us. Uh, and then I guess my, my last point, and uh, again, 
Chair Burke, congratulations on your first meeting, and, and uh, I'd like to be able to support you, and I'd be more than happy to volunteer to go to New Orleans on behalf of <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Chairman Emeritus. I'll defer to our other colleagues who wants to go to New Orleans. Uh, Commissioner Awubi. Thanks. I'd also go to New Orleans. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just want to echo my fellow commissioner's sentiment. Thank you for a great presentation. Um, two quick questions. One, I came across an identification scanner a couple weeks ago, and I found it a little disconcerting to have my personal information pop up on a screen. Um, is that information saved by the establishment? I don't believe it's saved permanently. I don't know. Not by the establishment, no. So where does it go? I mean, once you walk away. I'm going, to, I'm going to have Sergeant Jaconte maybe speak a little bit more in terms of the ID scanner. And I might, I, I might even embarrass one of our permit holders that uses it and might even have him come up and speak on. But yeah, yeah. Um, Bob Simpson, he has a number of venues, and he was probably one of the first people uh, to actually utilize the ID scanner, and he's been a really big advocate for it. So. I'll start. I'm Michelle Giganti. I'm with the police department. Um, the ID scanners, the information actually goes into the cloud and goes to the business. Um, we do have access to be able to pull that down if we need it. I've had this position now for six months. Um, I've been downtown Midtown for three years as a supervisor, and I have yet to request any information. Um, I know my colleague has um, during the stabbing incident at 20th and K when we were doing that with, what was his name? Yeah, the, the, uh, the heroes. So I know we, we requested it then and it was for investigative purposes, but hopefully that answers your question. As a patron, can you opt out of using the scanner? I mean, I think there's some, some safety issues that could come up if an establishment has a record of where you've been and when you've been there, maybe some people don't want that information eventually available. Got it. Um, some of the information that's pulled is pretty much from your zip code. So it's census information. So yes, your name is in there. There's a quick uh, snapshot of your picture. That goes into the cloud. That goes into the business that actually runs PatronScan and, and owns it. Um, we utilize it for the emergency situation. Um, as far as if you want to go in, the way we look at it is it's a, it's a decision. It's a choice. You could say no and then not go to this private place. That's the way we look at it. Um, on the other side, the business side, I'll let Bob talk about it, but my history and my education is my, I have a BSBA in, in marketing and business, and I look at this information as amazing information, and I'll let Bob talk about that because he utilizes it for his marketing side. Good evening. My name is Bob Simpson. I own and operate six entertainment venues in the city of Sacramento in the downtown core. And yeah, the patron scan has been a tremendous tool for me. I think it's, people are aware when they're presenting their information, their behavior levels are a little bit better. So in the larger clubs, when you know that your ID has been taken in and police will have access, you're, you're apt to behave a little bit better. As far as privacy, as an operator, we only get a picture and the name. We get no personal information. We do have the ability, if somebody has misbehaved in our venue, to put a ban on them based on you know, what it, it might be. If they, they assaulted somebody, it could be a 30-day ban that would go to the other venues and let them allow and make them the decision whether or not they want to allow them to come into their venues. Thank you. I have one more question. 
I'd also like to clarify that the scanners, it's really something that's a, that we don't have every club have. It's really based on the size and what they're doing. So it's mainly our larger clubs, our clubs that are more in hubs. So like we have some smaller venues, like for example, Bella Brew in Natomas has entertainment. They don't have a scanner because of the level of the type of entertainment that they're doing. So it's not every single club has a scanner. It's really if they're doing something, if they're larger, if they're doing DJs and dancing. So there's definitely some criteria that we use in terms. So it's not every venue has to have the scanner. Thank you. Um, last question. You talked about how wonderfully diverse Sacramento is. And I was just wondering if there's ongoing um, diversity training amongst the entertainment team particularly for minorities, people in the LGBT community, and, you know, women. Are you mean in terms of the police officers or just our team overall, or? I mean, I guess both. I guess I was thinking first the police officers, you know. I'll let police speak to the diversity with the police department. Um, I do think that one of the things that is really great, though, is that in terms of the team ourselves and the different venues that we have, that diversity, I think, does play well with each other. So I think that just that in and of itself does help speak to um, how we try to work together and, and understand the differences and try to be sensitive to that. But I know that Michelle can speak in more detail about the police. Michelle Giganti, back up again. Um, I am, for the city, I am the GLBT um, liaison. So I take this very personally. I have embraced it, and so has my team. Um, some of the most recent things that we have done as a team, internally and externally, is uh, we've just recently been part of um, the SAC City uh, um, the GLBT Center, uh, meeting with the 20-somethings uh, with our team, um, being open uh, to answer any questions about law enforcement or any questions that they have. And the Sac City Center is actually right at 20th and K, so it's right in the hub of one of our, our great meccas of, of having fun in the downtown area. So um, little things like that happen. Right now we're working uh, with our higher-ups to do uh, uh, in-service training, two hours on transgender, um, awareness. So we're working that right now for next year for all the officers to be going through. Um, and as far as working in um, in unison with our community, um, some little things that have been happening, big things that have been happening in the uh, community, the GLBT community, in the last year with the um, shooting that happened in Orlando at Pulse. Uh, right at the uh, year anniversary mark, about a week prior to that, one of our officers, Officer uh, Levin Hughes, put together, put together an active shooting um, seminar or a training for everybody at 20th and K. So Faces, Badlands, uh, Depot, Mangoes showed up, um, and that was a great uh, presentation. We also brought in uh, the bomb squad. Um, for awareness on any type of um, suspicious package, suspicious persons for anything that's happening. So that takes, we, we, we take everything um, and peel back the layers of not only the businesses in our areas, but who um, frequents the businesses in those areas as well. So we embrace that. Did that answer? Yeah, I think so. I think it would be nice to highlight some of that in this presentation. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Ogilvie. Commissioner Colville. Thank you, Chair. Uh, again, I applaud you on a, on a great presentation, and you're doing an excellent job with it. Um, oh, to go along with some continued questions that my colleagues have had, 
kind of like the good, the good neighbor type thing. You know, I'm, I'm going from memory a few years back where, you know, there's a lot of us here. We all have different opinions on things. But on one venue, I mean, we had some commissioners that wanted to, them to patrol and, and litter pick. I'm thinking it was like, you know, a long way, like six, seven blocks all the way around the venue, which just seemed so excessive. And I mean, how far can you take this? And I think if I understand the questions, can that be better done rather than us putting in writing that you have to patrol all the way into um, the next day for somebody who hangs out seven blocks away um, rather than just say there's a good neighbor policy that we will stick to? Does that make sense, what my question is? Yes, and I was, I was looking at... Um the conditions, because I actually gave you a set of conditions for a business that unfortunately recently closed. Uh, condition number 12 relates to litter. And so we kind of say adjacent, but we could probably talk about nearby, and some of them we talk about blocks. But we do try to not be burdensome, because I think sometimes people, you know, we, it's a fine line between really helping the business operate and making them be responsible and then addressing the concerns of the neighbors. And so we can't say, you know, a mile around, you've got to make sure every cup is gone, because it's not their cup, and it's not fair. But we do also want to make sure that our businesses are responsible because we did have some businesses where we did have to get a little deeper because it was very clear it was their glass because it had their logo on it. So we do have to have a, a certain sense of reasonableness in terms of what we do. So, I mean, I think that it's appropriate to say adjacent. It may be appropriate to say a few blocks. It also depends on where they're located. 10th and K is very hard to say that because there's a number of clubs. At 10th and K, we have social. We have Binnigan's there. We have Pizza Rock. We have Dive Bar. We have District 30. We have Polari around the corner. So it would be really hard to say which particular club was responsible for the litter. So it's hard to try to pinpoint it. But we can put some reasonable standards in terms of what we do. So if it's a club where we're pretty sure that it's their issue, we might want to be more specific in terms of saying a certain distance. And I do think we have some where we've done that. Uh, for the most part, we try to say adjacent and we don't have many problems. Again, that goes all back to communication with us in terms of people letting us know if that club has a problem, then we can work more closely with them. And sometimes it's just ignorant. Sometimes the club is unaware that it's a problem. And once you bring it to their attention, then they address it. So sometimes it's just saying, hey, there's a litter problem, go pick it up. And they're like, oh, okay. And then they go and pick up their litter. But again, if we don't get that communication from neighbors, um, then it's hard for us to be able to tell the businesses what they need to do to correct it. Very good. And then uh, I, I was curious, you were talking about um, different limitations, different times. When you have an event center, then that's a totally different uh, permit, isn't it? I mean, they could have something, they could have a wedding today and a, and a, you know, a business meeting tomorrow and a dance the next day. And yeah, and, and most, a lot of things are exempt. For example, if they're having a wedding, if it's a, you know, a reception, it's a retirement party, that's going to be exempt. And so we have some facilities um, that do kind of a mix. So uh, the Vietnamese Community Center is a good example for that. They do a lot of exempt events, but then every once in a while they do an exempt that's required by the permit. So our conditions only cover those things that are required by the permit to cover. So we can't regulate what they do for the wedding, but we can regulate what they do if they're having a DJ come and play. 
So that sometimes is a difference, too, because sometimes neighbors, if they're next to an event center that has an entertainment permit, they will complain to us about those events that aren't part of what we do. But we still use it as an opportunity to tell our permit holder that they may want to be a better neighbor. So even though we don't have the enforcement tool, we still want to make sure that they're being a good neighbor. Very good. Thank you very much. Thank you, Commissioner Colville. Uh, Commissioner Wong Conley. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Uh, it's a great presentation, thank you. And I have a quick question. So um, is there any case that a, a CUP um, issued by this commission and with, uh, that allows entertainment permit and when they go to you to apply for the entertainment permit that for whatever reason that uh, uh, is denied because it's really not suitable for the site? The threshold to deny is actually quite high for the city. Um, even though we send letters out to the neighbors, we can't say you can't have a permit because the neighbors don't like you. That's just not a good reason. So uh, the code is very specific in terms of reasons why we deny. Um, we deny if the applicant has a felony. Um, we'll deny if they have a history of problems and violations. Um, so it's a pretty high threshold for us to be able to deny a permit. But what we will do if we have concerns is, again, really use the conditions to really limit it. So if we have someone who comes in that we just think is going to be a problem, um, they're probably going to have a higher number of guards that's required. Uh, they're probably going to be limited on their days for entertainment. So that's when the conditions are a really good tool because that's kind of how we shape and focus what they can do, just because we know that it's a little bit more difficult for us just to deny a permit. Okay. Uh, thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Commissioner Wong Connolly. Vice Chair Lucian. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Um, I wanted to ask this question, and I'm glad you touched on it previously. Uh, I think this body has struggled at times um, with the desire for um, consistency with the conditions that we place on conditional use permits. And um, the need or the desire also to not uh, apply a, a one-size-fits-all strategy. And so I guess my question to you would be, uh, especially in light of the fact that you have suggested that uh, the conditions placed by this body at times are beneficial to um, how you tailor uh, you, the conditions that you place on the permits that are given out, are there any surefire conditions that, um, in your opinion, should always be applicable to, um, let's just say, certain types of venues, whether it's clubs or whether it's bars or um, any other types of venues that you would generally, based on your observations, recommend always be uh, packaged with uh, conditional use permits that are issued if any come to mind right off top, that would be appreciated. But even after the fact, if if um, if you wouldn't mind following up with sort of an email, maybe perhaps giving it more thought, uh, that we should take into consideration. I probably would want to give that some thought, just because I think that you're right. I think it's a one-size-fits-all is going to get us in trouble. But I definitely think there's some things we could do. And what I'd love to do is work with Stacia, maybe look at what some of your use permits actually have in terms of the language and then come up with some things that might be useful um, tools. And then also maybe give you some of 
kind of the criteria or the thought process. When you talk about consistency, I think the one thing that I always say is that we're very consistent in what we do in terms of our conditions, but they're not always the same and exact. So in terms of security, we're always consistent in terms of the different factors that we look at to develop the criteria for security, but the security number is going to be different. We're always going to consider, like, their location. We're always going to consider what kind of entertainment they're having. We're always going to consider, you know, the past behavior of the applicant if they've been a manager someplace. So that's always going to be something that's consistent, but that number just may be different for that particular venue. So maybe even trying to come up with some criteria and some things that you might want to think of when you're coming up with it. But I'd be more than happy to work with Stacia and then come up with some guidelines, especially um, because I think the more that we kind of work together, um, the easier it is also for the applicant as well, because then they know, okay, this is what I got at the planning commission. It's going to be consistent with what I'm going to get for the entertainment permit. So I'm happy to do that. I think I just want to take a little time to make sure that I kind of think of those conditions that we do where are most kind of either problematic or it'd be really helpful to get a little bit more guidance or a little bit more solid foundation from the commission. Absolutely. And, and I, would, I would suggest that, you know, to the greatest extent possible, um, if we understand, you know, the lens with which you look through these permits and um, the officers look through these permits and all of the other uh, applicable city staff, um, I think it would give us sort of great insight, even if we don't adopt those. And I think what, we're, what we also try to do at times is you can place conditions, the planning commission can place conditions, um, and then there's the city code, which may more or less place conditions as well. Um, to the greatest extent that we could provide um, a level of consistency um, and even certainty uh, for applicants at the commission level without sort of infringing on the discretion that you need um, to sort of narrowly tailor uh, permit requirements so that you know in order to assist the business being successful um, that would that I think that would be greatly appreciated I would certainly consider it value added to the work that we do okay we can we can definitely do that thank you vice chair Lucian uh, commissioner Yee. thank you a quick question you used the phrase hospitality zone and not from a land use perspective but from your your, your view. Is there such a thing as over-concentration? Is there a circumstance where we have too many venues and too small an area that because of that critical mass that it creates situations that might not otherwise be present? Is there such a thing as over-concentration? Um, I think that there is. I definitely think you can reach over-concentration. I don't think we're there yet. Um, we definitely have some key areas where we have a lot of clubs that are together. And I think that what happens is you can kind of get a synergy. I think that 10th and K is a really great example of clubs working together. They have a collaborative, for example, where they work with the downtown partnership. And they actually all, there's a number of them that chip in to pay for off-duty officers to help them with security. And so, again, it shows how when clubs work together, you can kind of have this synergy of different clubs realizing we're stronger working together than pitting one another, you know, and trying to do that. Um, I think in terms of over-concentration, we do try to look and see 
kind of where the clubs are and what the numbers are and we do work with security. We're not there yet, but I think you can reach that. I think in Sacramento we haven't reached it to my, to my knowledge, but I think that definitely without really good planning, you, you could get there. And, and going back to a uh, uh, comment that uh, Vice Chair had mentioned, if there is concern that it might be an overconcentration situation, it would be. It seems like it would be nice to hear it before we make a decision as a consideration. So, therefore, what is the coordination between your office and planning staff to the issue of overconcentration? Is there a discussion? Is there coordination? Is there aside from uh, consistency of conditions? Uh, to the operator, uh, just to say whether it should a venue should be or should not be uh, granted a conditional use permit. Yeah, again, right now we haven't reached that point, but one of the things I can say, especially over the last year, there's been a lot more communication between us and planning. One of the things that's really great is that Sandra Yope is our zoning contact, and she does a really great job of reviewing our applications and kind of letting us know what's going on. So Sandra gets every application that we get and comments on it. So that's been an ongoing connection that we've had. But we've also had a lot more of our planners reach out to us when they know something is kind of in the pipeline. So they'll say, you know, what we just got and you know we got a call there's this business they want to do entertainment sometimes we reach out to people even before they open up so we've definitely opened up those lines of communication between us and planning so that we have a better idea and what it really does for us is even before they come here sometimes we're talking to businesses and we're getting a better idea about okay what are you doing what are your goals where are you thinking about opening up here's some of the things you need to consider so there's been a lot more communication than we've had in the past. So we have a better understanding of what's coming. And then we can also work with the planning staff so they can make sure that the applicant is aware of what they're going to need to do if they want to do entertainment in terms of working with us. So that, that's really greatly improved, I think, over the last year. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Yee. Commissioner Farrell. Thank the officers because I, I know it takes a unique skill set to uh, to work in those venues. Um, but I have a the question is, card rooms are considered adult inter, inter, entertainment, and in the downtown core, proposed card rooms um, will bring in could bring in sizable amounts of people. Is there any thought of including those? Uh, card rooms are actually currently under a different permitting process. So at this point, they're kind, they're separate. I think as we see card rooms, maybe as we move ahead, if they morph into kind of something different where they might have more of an entertainment component, that might be the case. But right now, they're governed by a separate section of the city code. So they're kind of separate and apart from what we do as part of the entertainment program. So once they start, if they start entertainment, that's when it would kick in? Yeah, so they may need to get something from us. So they may have multiple permits. So if they started doing entertainment activities, then they may need to get a permit from us. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Farrell. Commissioner Colville? Uh, just a comment to follow up with Commissioner Yee's uh, comments. You know, 10th of K, uh, we're, there's not very many residences around there, at least not yet, 
<laughs> but uh, so we're probably not going to get too many people saying that it's an overconcentration. But this body, once we get more into Midtown or something like that, it's the very first thing that everybody comes and says is that there's a way over concentration of, of venues and drinking establishments. So I just thought I'd make that comment. Well, it's all really about how you manage it. I think one of the things that was really great when we were in Texas is that, you know, you're in Texas and, you know, we have to sample the nightlife because that's why we're there. So we actually went out and we saw some really great places. And what's really important is having both sides of the equation address how you do it. And that's why we think of it in terms of hospitality zones. And one example is they had a neighborhood that was older. It had rundown houses. They were actually getting ready to tear them down. And what they did instead was they made them live music venues. And they were open-air live music venues. And right next door was this beautiful hotel. Well, you would think that there'd be a lot of complaints. But what was really great was the hotel, when they came in, installed soundproofing. And wow, what a concept. You're next to live music venues. Let's have soundproofing so that the people in our hotel aren't bothered. So, I mean, I think it's all in how you do it. So if we're going to bring residences where there's businesses and where there's nightlife, then we really need to work with those developers that are bringing residences in to have a certain sense of accountability and maybe make sure that they're putting in something so that their, you know, their residents aren't impacted. So that's one of the things that I think we would like to move toward and work on too, is making sure that it's both sides because our businesses do a really great job, but it's, it's almost unfair if you bring in something else and then demand that they change after they've been there for 10, 15 years. So we want us to try to get that win-win and make sure we can bring residences in, but make sure that the buildings are developed in a way to address sound from a residential side as well as from the business side. So there's different ways you do it. So again, that's what's important about the hospitality zone. That was a lot of what we learned when we went there. Um, I'm going to embarrass Bob a little bit because he's been a really great permit holder. And one of the things he did is we had a complaint regarding the citizen. And Bob responded so beautifully and made changes to how we did business and alleviated that. And so, again, it's all about how you communicate and how you work. And it was because Bob was a good neighbor, and he worked with them, and he provided information so if there were problems, they could contact them. So somebody else might say, wow, it's just loud. We shouldn't have the businesses there because it disturbs the hotel, when what it was is the business worked with the hotel so that they could operate, and then the business could still be successful and the hotel could still be successful. So again, it's all in how you work and how you plan. So I think it's all in how you plan for it to not necessarily say no, but to say how. Very good, thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Colville. Commissioner Bodipa, member. Thank you, Chair Burke, I'll, I'll keep it brief. I just wanna echo Commissioner Yee and Vice Chair Lucian's uh, points about the con over-concentration. Uh, that'd be good to have additional context as to how that's being evaluated. It'd be nice to also fold in to some degree what Commissioner Farrell's talking about other entertainment uses that fall outside because if we're looking solely at what's defined as that the traditional entertainment uses, it may not give us the information we need to make the right decision. So we're looking forward to seeing that. I also want to just follow up on what Commissioner Ogilvie mentioned about diversity uh, in the police force and the entertainment component. Um, I, I'm aware and I don't want to speak on behalf of the police uh, themselves. I know that there's some diversity training that goes about, and I, I know I saw in my interaction, uh, let's just be completely transparent, uh, besides the church hour, I think the, the club hour is one of the more segregated periods as well, where you have clubs that are geared towards certain ethnic demographics and it can cause 
different types of tension when you combine alcohol and other activities that happen late at night. And I know that we, we saw a few things that happened. I was, I was impressed with how folks were able to handle the diverse groups, but it would be nice to be able to provide uh, to this body and others what, is, what training is taking place and figure out ways to continue to, to, to add that training because, again, we want to make sure that Sacramento uh, continues to hold its reputation as not just being the most diverse, but one of the most, one of the cities that celebrates its diversity in terms of how we handle everything. And I, I'm looking forward to, to hearing more about that the next time we talk to you. Okay. Thank you, Commissioner Bodipa member. I have two quick questions. Um, one is with the pop-up scenes now, what, what is, I'm sure there's a whole litany of criterion that triggers the need for an entertainment permit. With some of these temporary events and structures and this thing is here for one week, three months, is there any talk of how do you handle those things? Uh, we do have special entertainment permits. Um, typically, we really encourage the two years because the pop-ups, a lot of times it's promoters coming in and they're not the most responsible. So we're really, that's going to be something I think as that comes up more, we're going to have to really figure out how to deal with those because right now, um, a two-year permit, the process is very similar to, I mean, a, a special permit, the process is very similar to a two-year. Um, and again, the, the issue with the pop-up is a lot of times the pop-ups, they come up in places like warehouses, which aren't designed for people. They're designed for wares. So it's a little bit of a struggle because, you know, someone sees this great big space and they think, this is cool. This is a warehouse. I could fit 500 people in here. And, you know, we have acting Fire Marshal Lee here. And I think Jason's thinking, no, it's a warehouse. It's not designed to have 500 people in there. So pop-ups are a little bit of a, of a challenge. So I think we're going to have to figure out how to address that and do that safely if they can find locations where it's legal, how we can maybe facilitate those type of events. But right now, the special entertainment permit, it's, it's just a little bit, I think, a little bit more daunting for some folks when they do it. So we're, we're going to have to try to address that um, as they become more popular. And, and my second question before we get to Commissioner Kaufman is, um, back to the diversity, I know recently, I, I think I read in the paper and I saw in the news, a patron at one of the establishments was... Uh, treated unfairly or poorly by one of the security guards. I think it was a, a ban or a boycott for a couple of days or a month, I believe. There was requests for diversity training on the staff. It seems like a lot of it is the fire police enforce or co-enforcement enforcing stuff on the patron. In those situations, is it, I guess, a person like that could call 311? Because oftentimes I see certain people are let in, certain people are not let in. One club has a dress code, one does, and it seems very arbitrary. Sometimes some people feel discriminated against by the patron. Is there a number or what's the solution to that? Who can they you contact? Can, people can always call 311, and as long as they make sure it's, it's entertainment-related, it'll get to us. That's one of the reasons why, quite frankly, we do try to do the pub clubs and bars and really try to talk to people. Um, a big element that we cover every time we do it is really talking about the purpose and the role of the security guard. And we try to make sure that they don't see the security guard as a bouncer. I think a lot of people think of it like they're Patrick Swayze in Roadhouse. And that's really not what we're looking at. We're really looking at it in terms of, you know, we've kind of called them as they're the ambassador. Usually they're the first person that that person 
person sees when they come in the club. And so we really try to train them to have their security guards see themselves in that role and that their role is really to make people feel welcome. So when we hear about those kind of things, we typically do reach out to clubs and let them know that there's some issues, how can we train you better, to make sure that their security guards really understand the importance of kind of what they're supposed to be doing because really they shouldn't be treating people that way. And we do get those complaints. And so if people have issues, they can either do it through 311. Um, again, I'll update the PowerPoint to give some additional contact information for us. Um, So there's our phone number, um, there's actually our um, email address, and anything that goes to entertain permit at cityofsacramento.org, it goes to CDD, but we make sure that it goes out to the appropriate department. So if it's fire-related, we'll forward it to fire. If it's something related to police, we'll make sure that we get it to police. So that's another avenue that people can let us know if they're having concerns or if they ever feel that there's an issue with, a, with one of our venues. Thank you. Thank you so much. Commissioner Kaufman. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, really appreciate how thoughtful you and your team have been in putting this program together and the way you're implementing it. Uh, given the ethic that you have about sort of avoiding problems, solving things up front, I was looking at the permit conditions you have on the sample application here. I assume those are largely the 19 boilerplate conditions that you have. And I was looking at the good neighbor one, number 16, and it's all geared to resolving, alleviating problems once they've occurred. You might want to think about altering that so that you, um, you would have a condition that would have this language, but it would be prefaced by a, a, a requirement that a permit holder meet with the, the, their relevant community um, to familiarize themselves with the community and familiarize the community with them might it might help um, and be very consistent with the approach that you have actually that's a really good suggestion because even though it's not written that is something that we really try to tell people um, and one of the things that's really critical to understand about the way our process is compared to other business licenses it really is a relationship we see these people regularly we go out you know we have the e-team going on on a regular basis and seeing them um, we have the pub clubs and bars so a lot of licenses is you get your license by we'll see if you renew maybe maybe it's done by mail but we have an ongoing relationship with our permit holders so um, occasionally Sergeant Jagan gets me out on a Saturday night so I'll go out late and I'll actually go out and they'll know who I am so I'm not just a name on a permit they actually oh Tina she's out tonight so it's more about having that relationship and that's a really good suggestion because that is something that we really tell them to do because we do want them to be good neighbors we want it to be more than just they have their business there but that they're really part of that community thank you so much Commissioner Kaufman Commissioner Plockybaum since you brought it up, uh, I was, I'll just disclose I'm a board member for M5 Arts and one of the groups that brought uh, Art Hotel and, and uh, Art Street to Sacramento looks forward to bringing more of those type of pop-up type uh, short-term annoying warehouse venue type uh, installations. I, I, I completely agree with that assessment, by the way. Um, you know, I, I personally always wanted to be a member of the A team, but since you've explained <laughs> your grading you know, standards, I think the E team <laughs> is where it's at. Thank you very, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Ms. Levaut, and thank you so much, team, for all, all that you do to keep us safe and also make sure we have a lot of fun, too. Thank you. Thank you. Any public comment on this item? Any public comment on this item? Seeing none, we'll go to the next 
item on the agenda, and that's P17-014, uh, the Twin Rivers project. Um, any commissioners recusals, disclosures? Commissioner Yee. Thank you. Uh, I had uh, an occasion to speak to staff as well as I believe it's the applicant. And uh, uh, our discussion is contained in the uh, staff report. Thank you. Commissioner LaFossa. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chair. Uh, several conversations with representative of the applicant, and uh, it's in the staff report. Thank you. Commissioner Wong Conley. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chair. I spoke with the member of the applicant, and mainly it's for clarification of uh, uh, questions on the staff report, and had an email exchange to follow up as well. Thank you. Thanks. Chairman Emeritus, the Bodiba member. Thank you, Chair Burke. I did have email communication from the applicant representative and also conversation with staff. Thank you. Commissioner Koval? Uh, I had email from a representative of the applicant. Thank you. Commissioner Ogilvie? Um, emailed with representative of the applicant and requested some information that was not in the staff report. Thank you. I, too, uh, received an email from a representative of the applicant. I had a conversation, a phone conversation this afternoon with representative of the applicant. All the information was contained in the staff report. Hannibal. Thank you, Chair and members of the Commission. My name is Michael Hannibal with the Community Development Department. And the project before you tonight is the Twin Rivers Housing Project, file number P17014. And the subject site is at 1209 Sitka Street, which is an existing 22-acre site located at the southeast corner of Richards Boulevard and Industrial Street. The site is currently developed with 218 multi-unit dwellings. The scope of the Commission's review includes the tentative map to subdivide the project into eight parcels, site plan and design review for the tentative map, and the first two phases of construction, which consists of 170 dwelling units, and tree permits for the removal of 93 trees. The environmental document and mitigation monitoring plan covers the, all phases of construction, including the ultimate goal of approximately 500 dwelling units and a future light rail station uh, on the east side of North 12th Street, located at this location here, just to the east of the project site. Again, we are reviewing the final design of only 170 of the approximately 500 dwelling units tonight. Additional site plan design review will be required before the future phases of construction can continue. Staff finds that the project is consistent with the general plan and the goals and policies of the River District specific plan and is supportive of the project. We request that you approve the entitlement sh as shown in attachment A of the staff report. The applicant is also here tonight and ready to provide you with more information about their project proposal. And I'd like to introduce Tyrone Williams with SHRA. Good evening, Chairman Burke and Commissioners. Um, I'm Tyrone Roderick Williams, Director of Development at the Sacramento Housing and Redevelopment Agency and the Director of the Sacramento Promise Zone. Tonight is a monumental uh, step in a journey that started um, in 2012 uh, with the Sacramento Housing and Redevelopment Agency responding to a request um, through the Choice Neighborhood Initiative issued by HUD, which is better known as uh, CNI. Since that time, we've been working closely with our residents of Twin Rivers, We've assembled one of the strongest development teams in the country 
to move forward this development. And so we have our green team here tonight, and we'll be passing the ball to each one of them as they come to talk about their prospective roles. Uh, we have representatives uh, from SHRA. We have a nationally recognized development partner. We have the assistant director of public housing who oversees um, the public housing for not only the city, but for the county. And we have a resident who will be um, participating in the relocation and return activities associated with this project. Sacramento competed nationally to have the opportunity to receive the $30 million grant. It was not handed to us. Uh, we um, entertained a stellar team from HUD to come down and to not only look at um, Sacramento, but the city assured them that this would be a high priority project if we were selected as one of the cities to receive the $30 million grant that serves as the catalyst for what you're about to hear and review. We appreciate the opportunity to help be a part of moving Sacramento to a new level of neighborhood revitalization. Tonight, you'll be looking at the physical properties. But we're equally and greatly committed to the residents and the neighborhoods as well that will, that will be impacted by this project. So I'm going to ask Jeffrey Ross, who's the Assistant Director of Development and Federal Programs, to come up. And we'll begin to explain the different aspects of this project. Good evening, Chair, Commissioners, Jeffrey Ross, Assistant Director of Federal Programs and Development, SHRA. And uh, I have the distinct honor of leading, as Tyrone called, a dream team in terms of bringing together a very monumental project uh, for the city of Sacramento. Oh, there we go. Awesome. Thank you. And then I will use this as well. So. The reason why we're here, as Tyrone, Tyrone was alluding to, is that we really are trying to recreate a community and re-envision a community uh, physically here just north of downtown that has been isolated for a long, long time. We are trying to go about and make sure that we have a community that works for the residents uh, regardless of their physical constraints, their economic condition, or their social class. And if done right, and we believe this is going to be done right, um, this will serve as a model for the city of Sacramento of how we should be looking at community and building community for the next, you know, decades to come. But in order to do that, we have to look at and, and totally recognize and understand what have been the challenges that we've faced up in the River District the last 70 years. And we're talking about a community that was built in the 1940s and uh, expanded and enhanced into the 1960s. Um, it is the oldest development in the housing authority of the County of Sacramento's public housing inventory. It has been isolated um, from other uh, communities and neighbors uh, in, in the city. Um, there are no neighborhood schools. There's a school up there, but the, the, our, our children can't go there. It's, it's just, it's not, it doesn't function like, the, uh, like most neighborhood schools that we think of. There's very limited transit options. Um, and as such, it is a very car-oriented community. And uh, our, our residents uh, have some income limitations. And so that doesn't really work well, uh, really, for everyone. Um, you know what? 
we have a concentration of homeless and, and providers up there, and the neighborhood doesn't really work really well for them. And so part of what we're doing is making sure that it not only works well for our residents, but it works well for them. And so we have to overcome those challenges. And the other thing is that we have to recognize that we are in an environment where there is declining financial resources. So we've looked at this for a long, long time. And, and really beginning in 1996 is where we've seen a nice steady decline, regardless of administration, regardless of, uh, of Congress in uh, public housing finance support. And so SHRA uh, and the housing authorities back in 2007 uh, went through and adopted an asset repositioning uh, strategy that really begins to address how we look at our portfolio holistically. And we had three options really that, that uh, we, we categorized all of the properties into. There's modernization, there's dis disposal, and there's leave as, as be and, and, and continue forward with. For Twin Rivers, back then we identified it was to be converted for asset management, meaning that we were going to modernize it, we're going to redo it, we're going to reimagine. Fortunately for us in 2010, HUD, um, you know, they modified what was then known as the HOPE 6 program and launched the program that Tyrone was alluding to, known as the Choice Neighborhoods Initiative. And what's special about Choice Neighborhoods is that it looked beyond just the housing. And so what you're seeing tonight is the housing component and the entitlements and environmentals for that. But there is concurrent activities going on. This is a massive undertaking. And so the $30 million that Tyrone alludes to uh, in his opening statement is actually divided up between housing, families, and neighborhoods. And so we have about $20 million that's available as seed money to uh, go ahead and be able to reimagine and redevelop the housing on the site. We have the remaining money evenly split that is divided for residents and, and people as well as for the neighborhood and to facilitate improvements and to better the conditions for all involved. So we started down this path. Um, again, Choice Neighborhoods came into existence in 2010. We were part of the second cohort that was uh, fortunate. And, and, and I do say fortunate because it was a very competitive process to begin uh, the planning, uh, the formal planning process to reimagine public housing in the 21st century. We received a $300,000 planning grant, and we, uh, uh, at that time, we procured and partnered with McCormick Barron, who will be coming up here shortly after me, and they became uh, one of our, 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 our biggest partners. They, they are our housing lead. They're helping uh, as a development partner to, to make the the vision that we have worked so hard over the last five years with our residents, with the neighboring businesses, and the community uh, to really make sure that that comes to fruition. Uh, we've, we went through a two-year planning process um, doing just that, coming up with the vision for Twin Rivers. And then um, we went after and successfully uh, received a $30 million planning grant, again, seed money for what will become an over $300 million development when it's all said and done. So we've achieved a lot. We've been doing a lot of concurrent activities, and uh, we continued up until this day. Our team really is a combination of, of SHRA serving as the project manager and the housing authorities, the city of Sacramento as our co-applicant and the neighborhood lead, the county of Sacramento uh, through the housing authority of the county, which this uh, property belongs to, serving as the actual applicant and property owner, 
McCormick Baron Salazar serving as our development partner and housing lead at Urban Strategies, who is uh, embedded with our residents out on the site, really working hand in hand doing case management and looking at people. And so uh, as you look at this team, one thing that I know always comes to mind and rightfully so, how is this team addressing the residents in addition to the housing? And so I point out the city of Sacramento and the county of Sacramento because um, Rightfully so when you look at the residents and the impacts to their lives and relocation, what does this mean? The city and the county, the county acting as the housing authority, the city as co-applicant, uh, next month we'll see uh, before them a staff report where we're going to be recommending and hopefully that they approve uh, a formal relocation plan, both before their governing bodies, that really guides and is a living document as to how we are going to continue to work with the residents as they go through this development process, as we begin to slowly relocate them, either temporarily or permanently, that is their choice, um, and for us to uh, move folks back. And so this is a, a really big um, piece of what we're doing, but again, there's multiple facets happening, multiple uh, uh, reports and activities uh, occurring concurrently. And so when the residents move back, we don't want them just to have great housing, and I'm, I'm confident they're going to have great housing, but we want a neighborhood that is functional, that works well for them, and that quite honestly is on par with anything else that we have in this city. And so how do we do that? We are looking at placemaking opportunities. We are really looking at connections and how do we improve connectivity and mobility. We are addressing health and healthy food. This is a food desert. These residents deserve better than what their condition is today. And so we are looking to address that. We are also looking to lessen the impacts of homeless because we want to address what is going on in terms of providers and homeless in the River District, not to rush them out, but to address homelessness at its cause and make sure that we're functioning appropriately within the neighborhood. We're also looking at, we're going to create additional amenities beyond housing. Uh, part of this is to create a new light rail station. You know, light rail goes right by this community, but it doesn't stop. And they have to traverse quite a, a lot of barriers to try and get to, to that type of transit. We're looking at uh, 16th Street. There's, there's some work looking at the historic uh, district down there. How do we uh, look at activating that and making sure that it connects and functions really well with what we're trying to do? 12th Street, we know there's going to be an amazing complete street going on there beginning probably in the next year or so when they break ground where we're going to have our cycle track. And of course, at some point in time, we'd all like to see Richards get realigned and address the, uh, the intersection of 16th, 12th, 160 and Richards Boulevard. This project is addressing that. We're looking at how to make sure that we do that. In addition, the city is already moving forward on developing a new fire station in the neighborhood. And of course, we're all waiting with bated breath when the Powerhouse Science Center is able to uh, be able to come up. Because these are all amenities that all of us in Sacramento and the Sacramento region want to see. But these are amenities that are going to be at their front door when they move back and that they need to be able to access. And so that's what, what you're going to see tonight, what this is about. And again, it's about the people. It's about making sure that we have the proper impacts and outcomes when it comes to our residents. And so we are starting to see some great outcomes today. That has been abnormal compared to the experience that our residents have unfortunately uh, been able to experience the last several decades. That is going to become the new norm as we go forward. So we're looking at health, economic self-sufficiency, education, safety, 
civic leadership and engagement. Those are the things that we want to make sure that are all addressed for our residents in addition to housing and in addition to just the neighborhood improvements. With that, I would like to take this opportunity to invite Yusuf Freeman, our um, Managing Director for McCormick Baron Salazar. Good evening. My name is Yusuf Freeman. I'm Managing Director at McCormick Baron Salazar. I've been with the firm for about 12 years, and I'm responsible for leading our, our development business west of Texas. Uh, the company's been around for about 45 years now, and it was founded by our still chairman, a guy by the name of Richard Barron. Uh, he represented public housing residents during the tenant strikes in the 1970s at uh, Pruitt Igo. Some of you might be familiar with the Pruitt Igo old school public housing towers of, of St. Louis that have come down. I'm sure most of you are more familiar with Cabrini Green, but basically it was St. Louis's version of, of Chicago's Cabrini Green. And from that experience, he founded the company under the premise that regardless of your income, children and families deserve high-quality housing and safe neighborhoods with access to quality schools that we'd be happy to send our own children and our grandchildren to. And from then, the company has grown. We've developed over 17,000 units of, of housing around the country. Uh, we manage over 40,000 units. Um, we are the premier developer of public housing transformation developments. Both Tyrone and, and Jeff mentioned the, the Choice Neighborhoods program. We have been selected as the lead developer for uh, 10 of those around the country. Before that, we were the, the leader in Hope 6 development around the country as well. And uh, this being where I grew up, I'm, I'm really excited that Sacramento was able uh, with all of our team collectively to, to get this grant so we get to move forward together in revitalizing the, the Twin Rivers uh, development. So just to give a, a quick housing overview of, of the plan that we're, we're working on, um, there, as, as was mentioned in the introduction, there are 218 public housing units that are currently on site. And we're looking to bring back all 218 of those public housing units within a mixed income context, which has not been something that we've really seen much of in, in Northern California or California in general. This is the best practices model for revitalizing public housing around the country to deconcentrate the isolated islands of uh, extreme low income that were um, even if around the area had had connections were, were disconnected to the neighborhood that it was already set in. And so um, with that, we will include an additional 134 affordable units and bring on 135 market rate units. So just to talk a little bit about the difference between those, those income types, the 218 public housing replacement units HUD defines public housing replacement units as units that have an operating subsidy from, from HUD. So that can be the old school public housing, Section 9, uh, that, that's the traditional public housing that's currently providing the operating assistance um, at, at Twin Rivers. One of the reasons why traditional public housing has had such a, a hard time maintaining uh, quality maintenance over time is because each year, Congress, everyone agrees uh, how much is needed to operate the public housing. And then Congress takes a proration of that. 
So at, at the beginning, the amount of subsidy that's available is already less than what everyone agrees is needed to operate the housing. And then there's a need to take administrative fees off of that. So by the time the subsidy actually gets down to the, the public housing unit, you can be looking at anywhere from 70% to 80% of the amount of operating subsidy that's necessary to keep that unit at, at the level that everyone agrees would be appropriate. And so there are other now operating subsidies that are available that come in at a higher level. We are very fortunate that uh, this project, the replacement units, will be uh, project-based vouchers, and so that will bring the operating subsidy that's necessary to operate those public housing replacement units into the future. The other units, and most of you are going to be familiar with, are, are the traditional affordable units that will be available for households earning up to 60% of the area's median income. And then the market rate units are going to be unrestricted. So we don't see any current market rate units in the neighborhood, and so as we go through our underwriting for the project, those, those rents aren't going to be what you see in downtown and other parts of Sacramento, but they're unrestricted, and so that gives an opportunity to have economic integration into the neighborhood while maintaining the affordability that's been there and preserving that, as well as increasing the number of affordable units for the overall program that we're talking about at Twin Rivers. So it's having a place for a right to return for all the residents who currently live there in the replacement units. It's bringing additional affordable units, and then it's providing that economic integration. We believe from our philosophy and by doing these projects around the country that we need to have the true economic integration on the site. So that means not segregating certain incomes in certain parts of the site or even segregating certain incomes in certain buildings in the site. And uh, in the previous presentation, they talked about folks going out to New Orleans. If you go, I highly recommend you go visit one of our public housing redevelopment sites there. It's 460 units. It's called Harmony Oaks. For those of you who may be familiar with the rapper Juvenile, that's the former Magnolia public housing site that's been uh, redeveloped into Harmony Oaks. There are 119 buildings on the site. Every single building has public housing replacement units, affordable units, and market rate units in them. So there is no isolation based on income, and every unit is designed to the market standard. So there are no features that a market rate resident receives that a public housing replacement unit doesn't receive or an affordable replacement unit doesn't receive. So that is the overall program of what we're talking about in terms of this true economic integration as part of the public housing revitalization. Uh, even more, or just as important, this, this community um, has, if you've, if you've been up there, you'll see that the entrances uh, are not facing the, the surrounding community. It has its own street network that doesn't connect to the surrounding community. And so what's critical with the plan that's before you is re-knitting this, this, this community with the surrounding neighborhood to make those important connections to transit, to jobs, and of course to downtown. And Jeff talked about the, uh, our, the, the light rail station that's going to be a critical part of this, this program. And of course, um, as part of our requirements with HUD and just good practice, practices and development, uh, this, this project will be uh, lead for neighborhood development, and we'll look at other uh, green features for each specific phase as, as we move forward. And, you know, 
there are limited resources, and it's fantastic that we have this $30 million grant to serve as the catalyst, but it's not going to be enough to actually get everything built. And so we need to create a, a financially feasible and appropriately scaled, but of course, amenity-rich uh, development to be able to bring in the families and bring back and, and give the community the, the level of housing that they, they need and deserve. So to put that plan together that I just walked through, and, and, and Jeff went through it with this slide, we started back in, in 2012. And that included creating steering committees that had representatives from, from the city, from uh, resident leaders and, and residents at the current Twin Rivers development, civic leaders, uh, departments, fire, police, neighborhood groups, business groups, and local and national philanthropy. And we went through an intensive charrette and design process that ultimately informed the uh, planning grant document, that $300,000 grant that, that Jeff spoke about, that planning grant document that was submitted to HUD and approved by HUD. And before we could submit that to HUD, it went in front of the, the uh, Sacramento Housing and Redevelopment Commission and was approved there, as well as approved by the city council. And that plan was the, the foundation for us to submit our application to HUD for the $30 million grant, which was awarded, which was also the foundation of the plan that's before you today for, for approval. So the, the item that's uh, before you today for approval are the, the first two phases of, of development at Twin Rivers. And here are the unit mixes, again, looking at the economic integration. So the, the phase one, uh, we're, we're looking at, uh, well, I'm sorry, phase one and two, we're looking at 170 mixed income units. Uh, 68 of those will be public housing replacement units. 62 of them will be additional affordable units. And 40 of them will be market rate units. Um, one thing I would like to add is while the public housing replacement units and that right to return for the uh, current residents is there. Any resident who also in income qualifies for the tax credit resident, uh, the tax credit units or the market rate units, because every time we go through a public housing transformation, we find that some families have chosen to live in public housing but actually earn above 60% of the area median income and may be better suited in, in a market rate unit, they'll also get priority for those units. So this, this whole program is set up to, to have the easiest and the fastest transition back to the new community for the residents who, who currently live there. And here's the, you can see the breakdown on your screens of the, the uh, bedroom unit type for the first two phases. I spoke a little bit about the, the financing and the approach that we're going to need to go through to to move all of these phases forward. We have that great catalyst from, from HUD. Um, we'll also be looking at both 4% and 9% tax credits. We're looking at the, so that we can move forward quickly with the first phase, the, the non-competitive 4% tax credits. So that'll be a bond deal. Um, I'm sorry, the four, yeah, 4% 4 tax credits. And then the second phase, we'll look to go in for an application for competitive 9% tax credits. Uh, we are a very strong candidate for the affordable housing and sustainable communities, and we're very happy that the state was able to sell um, all of the uh, av available items through the, the last cap-and-trade auction, which creates uh, a, a large pool of funds for us to compete for. And 
with the uh, transit improvements that are coming and the, the density that we have on the site, uh, we've been told that we're a very strong candidate for those funds and we're really counting on those funds. And then we'll also um, consider other opportunities uh, throughout the state nationally and if necessary, uh, speak with uh, local and, and national philanthropy. So um, I know the, the, the principal approval that you're looking at today are, are the site plans and the, and the unit plans. And so I'm going to turn it over to my, my colleague, Lauren Levrant, to, to walk through those images with you. And I will be here for any larger programmatic questions that you may have after the presentation. Good evening, everyone. I'm Lauren Levrant. I'm vice president of, at McCormick Bear and Salazar, and I'm overseeing the Twin Rivers project here in Sacramento. Um, I reached out and spoke to a lot of you. Um, I was happy to hear a lot of your questions and comments. Um, I hope that we have addressed some of them, and we're going to get a little bit more now into the design aspect um, of the presentation. So this is the rendering, and just to orient you, we are starting at kind of what's right in front is Richards, and to the side is Dos Rios. Uh, so we feel that the, the, the large four-story building right at the corner is really the gateway into the development, into the neighborhood, and into the greater downtown community. So we wanted to make an impact, a visual impact, with this building and this corner and really highlight highlight that building and especially that corner with, uh, you know, greater architectural features. Um, so you'll see more floor-to-ceiling glass, a lot of storefront uh, windows along the first floor, um, an active first floor as we'll get into with all of the site amenities, <coughs> management offices, and resident services offices located uh, within this building and on this corner. This is the existing uh, aerial, which I think we saw earlier today, uh, just to kind of give you some perspective. Um, everything's really disjointed. Uh, they are, as I'll show you in this, uh, mid-century barrack-style housing. Uh, they're older and dilapidated. They've been maintained as, as best they can, but they're ready to, to have something new in this neighborhood. Um, so this is the overall site plan, which includes both blocks one and two, which are the site plan approvals before you today, as well as the tentative map subdivision of the future phases. And over uh, to the right is what we keep talking about, um, the off-site parcel, which is where the future transit station will go. Uh, so looking at blocks one and two, uh, we, sh we go back to that rendering uh, with the uh, the, the focal point and the larger scale, scale building at the corner of Richards and Dos Rios, we kind of scale it back to two and three story garden style and townhouse units, all with entrances looking out into the neighborhood to help join the neighborhood, have connectivity. We want this to be a walkable neighborhood, promote public transit, promote uh, pedestrian friendly, bike friendly neighborhoods. Uh, so there are large, wide, uh, wide streets all of them with bike lanes, large sidewalks, heavily landscaped to encourage that sort of flow throughout the neighborhood and throughout the, the greater community. Uh, you will also notice that the park is centrally located. We were hoping, we are hoping to have that as kind of a focal point to unite the entire neighborhood, um, an amenity that we think everyone in both this development and the neighborhood at large 
will thoroughly enjoy. So to get a little bit more into detail on uh, Block A, Phase 1, um, again, we have the larger building at the corner of Richards and Dos Rios. Um, we're showing garden-style units, a little bit higher density, continuing along Richards Boulevard, again, with all of those entrances out onto the street, uh, with the parking tucked back behind so that, you, you know, you're not looking into a, a sea of parking. Uh, the parking is heavily landscaped um, so that the residents from their backyards are also not looking into a sea of parking. Uh, there are numerous site amenities ranging from <laughs> pool, uh, tot lots, barbecue areas, uh, dog walk and dog walk stations. Um, we are hoping to have electric car charging stations, car share facilities, uh, bike share facilities, bike storage. We're really loading this up with all of the amenities for, for everyone to enjoy. Um, this is a closer look at Block B, which continues that same sort of uh, feel and integration as Block A. It does not have that larger scale building at the corner because these are more residential streets. Uh, so we do have the larger buildings. The garden style units are at Dos Rios. And then as we step back into the neighborhood, uh, we have smaller scale buildings and more townhouse units. Uh, the the lower density townhouse units open up right into the park. Um, and the reason that the park is not fully programmed right now is we are just starting our park master plan. So we, we're starting with a clean slate. Uh, we're, we're working with the parks department to fully amenitize and landscape that area uh, to meet both the development and neighborhood and city standards. That park will be city city maintained once the development is complete. Uh, so we're very excited to be working with them uh, to provide another city park for the community. So I, with that, I'm going to hand it over to Owen Jones with SVA. He's with the Architects. Um, and he is going to, to discuss a little bit more of the architectural features, imagery, elevations, and concepts. Good evening. My name is Owen Jones. I am an architect working with and representing SVA Architects. And, and I would like to say that I'm really actually quite excited to be uh, a part of uh, the design team for this project and, and to be uh, a part of this, this important project. Um, and, and right before you have some, some conceptual images and, and inspirational images, I suppose, um, that uh, reflect the, the, the vision that, that we uh, expect to have uh, for, for, the, for the project uh, with a variety of materials and articulation um, and windows on the site. We also are going to have um, various place structures and shaded picnic areas. I think you've seen that in the, in the site plan uh, as well. Um, along with uh, community, community assets with uh, community park, fabric, fabric structures, and a connection to, which provide a connection to the neighborhood with barbecue areas and interior areas. Um, the, the, uh, as uh, Lauren was speaking earlier, this is the, the, uh, image of the, of the site as a whole. 
with our four-story building anchoring anchoring the corner, we uh, have have a full full glass on that corner that goes from from all the way up. Uh, you can see from the park, which is Lauren was saying, is yet to be fully fully articulated. We're we're in that process, but we do anticipate having. Uh, various place structures and shade structures there. The townhouse units, as you can see, uh, are facing the park, and the three-story garden uh, uh, buildings are also directly are connected to the park. Uh, we, we wanted to integrate those buildings actually into the park into the park space. Uh, let's see. Here's our here's a closer view of our four-story building. There are the, there's three stories of residences above the ground floor, uh, community spaces and and uh, and management offices that the that will be used there. Uh, these are uh, the only areas where there actually are one bedroom one bedroom apartments. Uh, we then we have a typical three-story units. Uh, as you see, we have we have windows that actually look out. I think they're, we we're calling it. We'd, we'd like to say that they're positive windows. That that maybe it's a, an overworn phrase about about uh, eyes on the neighborhood, but that is our intention. Our uh, we 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 are hoping with this to establish. Uh, it's it, it's also interesting to talk about about context, and in this case, I think what we're trying to do is establish a context for for the future. Uh, the, 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 this part of, is the first part of a multi-phase project, of course. So what we are trying to do is establish a, a vernacular and a, and, a, and a context for, for future development. Um, and I think you can see that here. We, we have various, we have, uh, various materials with, uh, there'll be cement plaster, some, some metal siding. Uh, we have various articulated roofs and uh, window window patterns that, that vary. Uh, the parking is all on the on the the guest parking is on the street, resident parking on the interior, and um, again we we can see those uh, varying uh, roof types that we will be having. Uh, the townhouse units also will be facing on the parking and then at the side over there. So, you want to pick that up, Lauren? Thank you. So, I'm going to close it up and then hand it over to um, one of our residents who has been with us for several years now going through this process. So, before I do, just to kind of touch back on what Youssef mentioned earlier. Uh, we are planning for this to be either a LEED certified or Greenpoint rated community. Uh, some features will include xeriscape drought tolerant landscaping. Uh, we're hoping to use photovoltaic cells uh, in some aspect, either for uh, car charging stations or for uh, water heaters. Uh, we'll use low flow uh, plumbing fixtures, LED lighting, low VOC paint. Uh, energy efficient heating and cooling systems uh, to meet those uh, requirements. We've all touched on the transit. Uh, we're very excited about the light rail station that's going in on Northwest 12th Street. Um, I also mentioned just some of the partners that we're hoping uh, to have maybe at Zipcar or another car share program and a bike share program. Uh, so with that said, I'm going to 
introduce Deco, and I am so sorry that I am. Oh, Latan, I'm sorry, wrong order. <laughs> so before before Deco comes up, we're going to have Latan with SHRA to just give a little bit of an overview of the relocation process. Thank you very much, Lauren. Good evening, Chair, members of the Commission. My name is Latan Jones, and I am the Assistant Director of Public Housing for Sacramento Housing and Redevelopment Agency. In order for this excellent project to actually be implemented, we are going to have to go through relocation of the residents. And it's important to note that has already been stated, but I just want to reemphasize that all 218 public housing units that will be demolished at Twin Rivers will be replaced one for one with HUD-assisted housing that will still be based on the residents paying no more than 30% of their income for housing and residents retaining the tenant protections they currently receive under the conventional housing program. Because the project was implemented by a federal implementation grant and will involve state and federal funding, the relocation plan will be subject to the Uniform Relocation Assistance and Real Property Act of 1970, the California Relocation Assistance Law, and the California Relocation Assistance Guidelines. Pursuant to these regulations, SHRA will pursue all remedies to minimize displacement, provide relocation assistance to all the residents, and ensure that households who are complying with their lease will have the right to return to the completed site if they choose to do so. The relocation plan was made available to the public for comment from June 12, 2017 until July 14, 2017. A complete copy was made available at the main office of SHRA, the Resident Advisory Board, Legal Services of Northern California, Twin Rivers Management Office, and many of the other local news outlets in Sacramento. Before the, uh, prior to making the relocation plan available to the public, all households received a general information notice. That general information notice explained their rights and responsibilities and benefits that they would receive as a result of the relocation plan. I also want to emphasize that the residents attended several meetings. We had meetings on June 6th, June 8th, four meetings on July 10th, and then also on July 13th. Based on the plan, all the residents will receive relocation assistance, and those desiring to return and remain in good standing will receive relocation services to and from the relocated unit. Residents will additionally receive a minimum of a 90-day notice prior to permanent displacement, written information statement describing their rights to relocation benefits and services, a notice of eligibility explaining the benefits the residents are entitled to based on information gathered from tenants in the interview, a minimum of three referrals to potential replacement housing that would not only be located in Sacramento, but outside Sacramento as well. Assistance with moving to a decent, safe, and sanitary residence by coordinating moving estimates as needed, paying for either actual moving costs by a professional company 
or residents will also have the option of being able to receive a relocation moving assistance payment if they desire to move their, their own selves. Assistance to negotiate and complete rental applications by the relocation consultant, the residents will not be left alone in trying to obtain properties. Relocation replacement differential payment within the set limits, security deposit within limits of the state law, right to return after completion of the new Twin Rivers project, right to appeal decisions made within the relocation program that affects them, and other requirements that's involved in the Uniform Relocation Assistance Law, the California Relocation Assistance Law, and the guidelines. Overall, relocation assistance is going to be provided to all of the residents. We will make sure every resident is relocated away from the site, as well as those that desire to return will be relocated back to the site. And those expenses will be on the agency's dime and not on the residents. Residents will receive assistance. No resident, whether they have a disability or otherwise, will be discriminated. We will make sure that we follow all of the laws for the Federal Fair Housing Amendments Act, the American Disabilities Act, Civil Rights Act of 1964, and any other rights or otherwise that would prevent any of the residents from being discriminated against. Thank you very much. And now we will bring up the co, who will speak with us next. Say it feels good to stand up. <clears throat> Thank you, and. Um, it's a long, long evening. My name is Deco Gilmore, and I've been a resident of Twin Rivers for 15 years. I have seven children. Six of them are girls. Moment of silence. Um, <laughs> the fourth one just graduated at Santa Barbara University with a BA in Performing Arts and Drama. And um, I raised them all on the island known as the Dose. It's been changed to Twin Rivers, but we still call it the dose. We can't trick or treat there because if everyone comes outside, there's no one to answer the door. The nearest neighbor is a mile and a quarter in uh, one direction. And once you get to that neighbor, it's sort of a, a shelter or a halfway house. It's not really a neighbor. There's no store. The school that he mentioned across the street is a charter school on an elementary school campus, which raises the question, where's the locker room? Um, the houses are, uh, even though they're very well maintained, they're melting. You can't put not another nail in the wall. You can't... Um, run the water too hard, and it's not because it hasn't been maintained, it's just old. It's very, very old. Um, we have a PlayStation, an Xbox, a cell phone, a curling iron, and things like that. And there's not enough outlets in this old house to accommodate that because they just simply weren't invented at that time. I welcome the change. I look forward to the relocation. I am very comfortable with the plan. And I am the most skeptical. When they showed up and said what they were going to do, I was like, 
You're going to have to convince me of that. How are you going to do that? And I asked a lot of questions, and I have rode them very hard through this whole process, which is why they have been so thorough, I'm convinced, because I've just asked a question. And how are you going to do that? And what are you going to do that? And who's going to pay for it? And who's going to pay for it? And I don't have any money. I can't pay for it. And how are you going to do that? And, and they have been forthcoming. Um, the plan for what they're going to build and the life that we're going to have when we come back, a lot of people were apprehensive of how am I going to live in a place that's going to be um, not just housing and not just poor people, but professional people and whatnot. And they brought in an agency, Urban Strategies, which kind of asks, what do you want to do with your life and how can I help you get there? They have offered trainings in health. They've offered trainings in um, food service. They've offered CPR training. I took the CPR training in the food service, by the way. Um, they have started a wellness plan to get people more in touch with how to live healthy and be healthy. Um, we've started a walking group where we walk. Um, it's supposed to be once a week, but we're out there three, four times a week on any given day. They've offered and helped with leadership training with our youth. They've offered youth services to get them employed, get their grades up, and I could go on and on and on. Everybody else did, so I'm just going to go on and on. They have, in order to come and... Um, They've offered us participation in the design of the building. One of my pet peeves was my shower hits me in the chest, which is washing your hair difficult. So we said, well, what about, can you, can you make a shower with a higher thing? And we're like, yes. Can you make a toilet that's higher? We got, yes. Can you make a, um, a standard size oven? Because some people really have a mini oven that a cookie sheet doesn't fit in. You cook your food and you set it over here, then you cook something else. And that's just simply because it wasn't built for now. Um, and we asked a lot of questions. We asked about the green space. One of our youth stood up and says, well, I want to have a place where I can hit a ball. I played Little League. I've played since I was four. And my dad bought me uh, wiffle balls so that no windows get broke. But I would like to have green space. And um, we would like to have a grocery store. We would like to have a neighborhood. And that's what they're bringing to us. And I really, really want it. I'm hoping that all your votes or just a formality, something you have to do. The city and the county, which are, my perspective, two cousins that fight over everything, have partnershiped up for this event, and I would like for it to happen. The way that we are at the forefront of downtown, right in the front off the 160, um, on one side we have a river, on the other side we have a hanky-panky store, Across from that, we have a shelter. Behind that, we have some warehouses and some other things. And that's pretty much it. There's nowhere to walk to. There's nothing to walk and see. But once this development takes, takes place and takes root and they open it all up, we look forward to coming back and just walking into downtown, which is only, what, a mile and a quarter away, maybe less, but no one wants to walk there because it's just so underdeveloped and not very scenic. As far as the, the housing, when we move back from this change, I will be down to two kids, <laughs> which means I will be a, an adult living in a brand new apartment in downtown 
without all the responsibility of them, I could just live it and love it for myself. I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to everyone coming back with a story of where they've been and where they've waited their time out. You know, a lot of people are apprehensive about this. They really just don't believe it could happen. I had the opportunity to fly to St. Louis and talk and to Washington, uh, D.C., and talk to some residents like myself who are in different phases of this redevelopment. Some of them were done. Some of them were in the middle. Some of them just moved to where they're going to be at. And I got to talk to them and ask them, how do they feel about it? And, and, and is it what they sold you? You know, is, is it true? Is it, is it really working out? Is it really all that they say it is? And they said, yeah. They said, yeah, it was hard because change is hard, but it turned out well. I heard even the horror stories weren't really that horrible. Um, the, the challenges of moving, what makes it okay is the guarantee of coming back. And because I'm the resident president of my neighborhood, I have told them all, take advantage of all the services that Urban Strategies has brought. Um, tighten up your lease in whatever it is that you need to do to stay in compliance. And go somewhere different and new for your time of waiting, because you can come back. You should take this opportunity to take a risk, do something, and some of them have. A 72-year-old auntie of one of the residents took a food service class. And 72 years old, I don't know, I'm, I'm old enough to have problems with the computer, but she got in there and participated and is happy, you know, and, and satisfied with what she's done. Um, another older gentleman took a CPR class, something he probably never would have done, but the services are there and they've helped us to unify and encourage each, each other to take these classes and it's been a wonderful experience. I can't wait to move. I really can't. I can't wait to move and move back. And I welcome any questions you have because I will be candid and blunt. They know that I, I, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Thank so, you so thank much. Thank you for your time. And I hope this is all a formality to you all. Thank you so much. And thank you for your leadership as resident president. Um, I know we have a lot of questions and comments for commissioners. Uh, but before I go to Commissioner LaFalso, I have one quick question. We keep talking about relocation to somewhere. I even heard outside of Sacramento. I don't think SHRA has a, a development of affordable housing that's just sitting around for a day like this is empty, correct? Um, the, um, we have Latan, who is the vice president uh, of um, the public housing, but I can share that the public housing residents will really have three options. Um, their first option is a what we call Section 8 voucher, housing choice voucher, which allows them to find a private resident um, landlord who um, allows them to live into in that in that home. And that res that resident will pay 30% of their current income, and the housing authority will subsidize the rest of that payment. That house can be located anywhere between city uh, anywhere in the city. Uh, anywhere in the county. Uh, in addition to that, that same voucher can be ported 
Um, port means to go anywhere in the country. These are federal uh, recognized vouchers. So if somebody has a relative in another state and elects to use this opportunity uh, to move to another state, they have the ability to exercise that option. The other option is that because the Housing Authority manages public housing for both the city and the county, and we are a joint powers agency, and the residents can move back and forth seamlessly between the city and the county, um, the public housing, uh, the current residents can choose to identify a public housing unit currently in the county or in the city. And as those units become available, and we're currently doing an inventory because we anticipate that a significant number of current public housing residents will elect to move into uh, public housing units that are being vacated. And so those are the options. So this is called Choice Neighborhood Initiative. And one of the first words is choice. The residents will have a choice to remain in the city, in the county, or anywhere in the country that they choose to move. And as they are complying with their lease agreements, they will have the choice to move back. Thank you, Mr. Williams. Um, Commissioner LaFossa. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Since you're there, Mr. Williams, I was going to ask Ms. Gilmore a couple questions first, but I'll start with you. Okay. Just No, no, just, just one quick question. Okay. So, I mean, just briefly, the bottom line, you actually haven't identified the 218 units. I get that given increasing rents in Sacramento, the way the HUD subsidy works, if the rent went up 200 percent and you got to pay 30 percent of income, in essence, you're protected from that. But given things you've heard about, I've heard about, about waiting lists and such. Is your relocation plan thinking about how long it may, how long, how, how long it may take those individuals to get through that process or, or how scarcity of supply of housing in general going to figure into your plan? We are definitely aware of the current rental rates and the challenges associated with finding affordable housing here in Sacramento. To address that concern, we've hired uh, a very experienced um, relocation company that's worked across the country in different markets who will be working with us. So it is not solely dependent upon the current staff of SHRA. Uh, but the responsibilities of the relocation consultants, that's their full-time effort working with each one of the tenants um, reaching out to landlords, reaching out to property owners, uh, finding additional units and other affordable properties, uh, looking at options for our residents. Uh, in cities across the country, Sacramento is un not unique. All of the choice neighborhood housing communities across the country had, had to face the same thing. Not all of them had the current rental rates that we face. But because of that, we've identified um, consultants who are extremely experienced and knowledgeable in competitive markets to assist us. As far as how long would it take, we are committed to making sure that all of our residents are properly housed in housing choices that they approve of. And so there is not the opportunity for residents to end up being displaced out of public housing and becoming homeless. That is um, one of the requirements of the federal guidelines and the list of federal guidelines that Latan uh, um, shared with you. So it may take, we anticipate that there will be an effort. That's why we have a team, not one or two persons trying to take this on all, of, all on its own. 
I, mm -hmm. I, can I go to my next question, please? Thank you. I'm going to ask Ms. Gilmore to come up. Appreciate okay. your answer. And while you're coming up, uh, you joked about about I forgot how you said it. Everybody talking so long. I just want to tell two little secrets. One, we actually give awards up here for who takes less time. Just just so you know. Just so you know. Matter of fact, I wouldn't mind if the chair put the one-minute clock up for the answers. Um, just also a quick comment. Well, what we do is, and if we have to ask lots of questions, it's our job. Yes. You know. So the two questions I basically want to ask you is: There's a lot of chat about you know the, the community isolated, and I I just do you have a car, and how do you get around? Where do you shop for food, and where do you where have oh, your kids over, go to school? Yes. Over time, I've had a car. Don't have a car, car, don't have a car. So I currently do not have a car. How do I get around? I have to depend upon the kindness of strength. Now, um, I, I walk the Alkali Flat, catch the train. There is a shuttle that goes to the train station also. And there's, um, there's the, new, um, the new train station by Township 9. Township 9. Yes. Yeah. OK. Yeah. Um, those are them, or you walk. Downtown is just right there. As far as a grocery store, that's going to take a little more car. Um, there is no grocery store. Right. There is a, um, a bulk store that just recently in the last, um, I don't know, I remember when I moved here, you couldn't go in there and buy anything unless you were um, a, um, a restaurant or something like that. Yeah. And I don't know, they sat at the table and decided we need to be able to sell to whoever has money. Do you, but do you shop there? Or do you like take light rail up to the Shop there. They, you can shop there if you have cash, if you know what that means. But, but if the, you shop local at whatever's there or you find your way no, to take No, that's emergency food only in that store. If I need some milk right now, I will go there. It's still cheaper than the gas station milk, which is further down the street. Um, the next nearest store would be back over the river to the La Superior, which is a, a store, which respectfully has all the products you love, but the American products are a little more pricey, just like the milk down the street. Um, then you have Foods Co., which is where most everyone shops, Foods Co., Smart and Final, or go the other way to Safeway. But there is no walk to. If you don't get it in the daytime, you pretty much ain't going to get it. So where have your kids gone to school and how have they gotten there? Everyone is um, bused to a school. Now, the school across the street when I moved in used to be an elementary school. It used to be Dos Rios Elementary. is now a charter school, which means that you don't automatically go there at middle school. You have to test to get in. Um, bus to Woodlake, which is over the river. Bus to Rio Tierra. Bus to Martin Luther King. Or you get your kid to the school that you want the, your child to go to. I voted for the Dos Rios to remain in elementary school and have it be the overflow school for the district. When your, your class is full and you have to bust them out, that just be the overflow school. Yeah, but it didn't win. Appreciate that. Really appreciate your answer to my questions, and you're reminding me how happy we are not to be school board members. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much for coming Welcome. here. Um, uh, I don't remember who has said what that I wanted to ask about. Um, 
I think it was Mr. Ross made a comment about um, residents potentially coming back and being qualified and being in a different income category, a.k.a. a, I'm sorry, did, uh, Mr. Freeman, okay, a.k.a. somebody would qualified at 30%, something happened, they now qualified at 60% for a tax credit unit. The question is, you still have to build that 30% unit and rent it to somebody else. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. You, 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 there's, a, there's a big picture vision question I, I wanted to get a handle on, which is sort of two, two big things. One, um, I did spend some time trying to bone up on the River District specific plan and one of your choice neighborhood grant documents. There's one from, I think it's February of 2014, and it does actually say, it's, it's, it, it identifies a much larger area than what's in front of us. In a sense, I mean, we have two areas. We have the larger area, this, this, this the subdivision map, and the more discrete area, this the site plan. That document projects potentially up to 843 residents. Can you put that in context for me? Sure, yeah. So as, as he was saying, when we did the initial we had the $300,000 planning grant. We put together a, a larger plan that really connected um, when, when they first put up the map, they showed the area where the uh, new station is going and basically everything between there all uh, connecting through the uh, Twin River site. So when we submitted our application to HUD for that $30 million grant, one of the threshold items was that you had to show site control for, for the area that you're submitting for. And so that's why that area was not part of the, the submission of the grant at HUD. And so we didn't want to promise HUD more units um, that then we could actually build with what was already under site control. So that's, that's the reason why there's a difference between the larger area and the smaller area. I would say we still collectively have that vision for the larger area and we'll be hopefully working on that over time. But the HUD grant is on a deadline. The funds have to be spent by the end of September 2021. And so we couldn't put too many extra requirements on us and not meet that, that timeline. So regardless of the site control issues, the 843 is or is not subject to that 2021 deadline. I missed that. Last it, is, it is not. Okay. It is not. Okay. How many do you have to what's – the, what's the residential count – to meet the, two, the, the 2021 deadline? So it's, it's uh, spending all of the, the funds, so spending the full $30 million, and HUD is gonna be most concerned with making sure that those 218 public housing re replacement units get built. Okay, interesting. I mean, I wouldn't be asking all these questions. I mean, I, again, I, th I don't think there's a single person in this room who doesn't want this project to succeed, but. There are all these context and evolution questions and how it's going to catalyze and how it's going to happen and what the pace – you get what I'm saying. Absolutely. And, and, and it's – you know, it's – we were having the conversation before we, we came today because, as you saw, we've been collectively working on this since 2012. And so you have a lot in front of you in a short period of time to, to be able to review and go over. So that's why, you know, we're here as long as you would like for us to answer any questions that you have. So the, the $30 million, I guess when I first read it, I thought it was a planning grant, and I guess I realized $30 million for a planning grant is a lot of money. Um, there's one slide I think said uh, 
20 million for housing, 30 million total grant. I know 20 is a subset of. But, I mean, is that 20 million for housing, you know, just, just part of your stack for all of the stuff you got to do? Exactly. What is the other 10 million? What, what kind of things might that, might that pay for? Sure. So there are three components to the Choice Neighborhoods grant. There's the housing, and that's where the 20 million is. Then there's people, and there's neighborhood. So the people things are what's funding a lot of the programs that uh, Deco was talking about in terms of the intensive case management, the educational program, the health program, the safety program, tutoring, uh, those types of things specifically to help residents become self-sufficient and prepared to live in successfully in, in, in mixed income housing and, and, and just giving a New Orleans example real quick, and this isn't, you know, this isn't what, what happens for, for every resident, um, but after Katrina, um, all the public housing sites were shuttered. They called it the big four. Four were to be redeveloped. The first resident to move back into any, any unit as part of the redevelopment of the, the, the big four uh, was a resident who had gone through urban strategies program and actually moved into a market rate unit and so we have seen these these success stories quickly most of the time it it, it it takes longer but that's also another reason why it's so critical to have those three tiers of income housing integrated together so as resident circumstances improve and income improve improves they don't have to go someplace else because their income is too high to qualify for some of these programs um, I'm sorry you had a second part to that question um, it's late. My brain's a little fried, so you're, My you're off the hook. You're off the Sorry, somebody said something. Oh, I'm sorry, the neighborhood. Yeah. So, and then the, the neighborhood part uh, is where the rest of those, those funds go. And there is a, a larger, outside of the, the Twin Rivers boundary, there's a larger neighborhood map that basically encompasses the, the river district. And, and those dollars get to go toward physical improvements throughout the neighbor, throughout the uh, river district. I mean, trees, park amenities. So it, it's, it, I'm laughing because uh, HUD kind of has a black box in terms of approving these types of programs. But one thing they've come back to is really looking for more physical structures. So if we had a for example, a grocery store partner, we could use those dollars to help subsidize the development of that, that grocery store. If we had uh, a warehouse, this is the example that HUD always gives, a warehouse that could be used as a business incubator or a food incubator, that type of thing, we could use those dollars uh, to go there. Okay, appreciate that. As Jeff is reminding me, and the, 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 the way that HUD describes it is projects that the city normally would not do. <laughs> okay, I'll leave that one alone. Thank yeah. you very much. I'm going to ask some rudimentary site plan design questions. Great. Because I know Ms. Levrant and Mr. Jones just want to answer some questions. Basically, I got, actually, I think I got one. The, um, and maybe this is actually for the city. So when we look at the, um, the that, those, those, those renderings, and, and starting with the big one that kind of imagines you're coming to the north on a helicopter. Uh -huh. So the, just to the, to the uh, yeah, that one. To the, to the east, I mean, you can see how Richards Boulevard goes out, and you kind of got this kind of parklet kind of space there, and 
I know it's where I think it's Eliza Street links into into Richards Boulevard and people who are more familiar with the plans know that there's a plan to realign um, Richards Boulevard and it's in our subdivision map is the idea that that <coughs> parklet for lack of a better term gets sliced off when the uh, when the uh, when Richards Boulevard gets realigned and maybe you or our staff can tell us what our, how our entitlement, what, what the staff report actually says about that. Yeah, so what I am actually going to do, let me see if I can pull up a better slide that shows the actual realignment. Um, and I am going, one doesn't show it very well. Um, I'm going to have Charles come up and explain it because um, he understands a little bit more, but it is essentially it will be an IOD dedicated to the city um, that once that design, construction, planning, and permitting process is approved will be formally dedicated uh, to the city for it to be implemented. Am I explaining yeah. that well? And, and I understand the dedication, and I see the map and the staff report. Again, I'm taking it back down to the rendering you're giving us. You're you're going to completely change the front experience of this site plan when the street gets realigned. That's, that's what I'm asking about. Yes, absolutely. Um, I'm Charles Kraft. I work with Cunningham Engineering, the civil engineer on the project. So you're correct. Um, in the interim condition, you'll have a lot of uh, greenery, um, large landscape areas out there that when Richards does get realigned, um, in the rendering, you can kind of see the sidewalk that's back kind of um, up adjacent to the buildings. That sidewalk is where the ultimate sidewalk will be when Richards gets realigned, close to it. It's, it's got some jogs and things like that to it, but kind of gives you an idea of where it'll be. So when Richards does get realigned, you're right. I mean, that the whole street moves over, and you will lose the um, that large kind of green area, the a little tree kind of... Uh, landscaped area that we're putting in that will be wiped out by the realignment and thank you for pointing that out because I was gonna how does that how do the loss of those trees figure into the overall tree mitigations in the staff report are they gonna have to sort of be remitigated as it were so a couple of things so we are planning for that st streetscape I guess to kind of uh, finalize that statement um, so that entire uh, facade elevation streets the streetscape is planned for the realignment um, so uh, as we show in the overall site plan uh, let's go to it here um, there are higher density units along that thoroughfare uh, to plan for that and then so going back to the mitigation uh, the rendering does show lots of really pretty trees right there and we are hoping to improve that space so it is not just a, a barren green space we, we want to enhance it but that portion of the property is not included in the tree mitigation um, so we'll have to just discuss with the city on how we treat that space uh, in the interim so that we're not planting a bunch of trees and then mitigating for them or the city's not mitigating for them once it once it gets formally dedicated to them so um, we've been looking at a few different ideas to like I said dress up that space in the interim uh, there are I don't know if we have the, the tentative map over here shows on the other side of the future realignment there are two kind of triangle parcels uh, that will not be in the right-of-way so one of those will we're hoping to have it as a community garden 
we've been talking about that. So we are hoping to utilize some of that space in the interim. Um, but since that is not formally part of our property and will be future um, right of way of the city, we're, we're kind of being mindful of how we treat it. I don't know if that answers that. Oh, no, that, that's clearly. okay. I was focused on the, really, the northern streetscape. Mm -hmm. So my last question, and I think this might, might migrate to staff, but I'll try it on you. So I, uh, back in my memory, my first read of the staff report, I remember reading some standard conditions about parks. And we had this issue in our parks ordinance where uh, certain facilities can be private and certain circumstances about... Um, charging residents under certain circumstances. How does that work in a community where most of the people don't have a lot of disposable income? Um, it's not my understanding that the residents will be charged for the park and the park will be maintained. I'm not sure if there is like an impact fee that we pay towards parks in addition, but it's my understanding that we are building the park in lieu of Quimby credits or or park fees is that am I right in saying that perhaps that I'll uh, perhaps I'll yield and look for the provision that I read Monday when I read the staff report for the first time and come back to you yeah so it's my understanding that there are park fees that the development in and of itself would have to pay um, and because we are we are over a certain threshold uh, we are required to implement a, a physical park in lieu of paying a park fee. I'm not sure if that's what this yeah, no, is. Yeah, no, I'm talking to, about privatizing facilities and making residents pay for them. Yeah, I that's, don't think that that is the case here. Um, I'll, uh, I'll go find the condition. Okay, but, but just, just to be clear, our, our partnership and our housing will not charge residents for using any of the, the facilities that are ultimately owned by, by the development. Okay. Um, I'll yield. One of my colleagues may have found it. Um, thank you all. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Commissioner LaFalso. Uh, just anyone here for public comment, please fill out a speaker slip, return to the Commission Secretary. Um, we'll go to Commissioner Wong Conley. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chair. I think uh, the condition is uh, 56. I have a follow I have a similar question as well. Um, I guess the first question is for the architect, um, if you may uh, answer come to the podium if you would like. Um, okay, thank you. So um, what one challenge that I understand about public housing is uh, the maintenance. There, by nature, there, there might be more wear, wear and tear. So um, in terms of the architectural design, what are the site design? Is there anything particular that you consider when you design the public housing? I'm not sure I'm entirely understanding. As far as maintenance, is what the materials are particularly? Right, material um, Well, I, I think that in this case we, we are looking to use materials that we anticipate would be long, uh, uh, easy to maintain. And, uh, but more than that, that they are, uh, uh, have, a long, have a longevity to them. Uh, so we are proposing uh, right, right now, the, 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 it's, it's a matter, I think, of how it's, of how it's detailed, uh, because a lot of the, uh, I would judge, the, the buildings that are there now, uh, besides just being very old, they, they, they are of another era, if you will. Uh, so 
but with modern, with more, I don't, I don't know if I want to say modern, but more contemporary current materials, if we properly detail the, the cement plaster and the metal siding, and then we're going to have uh, where we have roof overhangs, uh, all that, uh, if we carefully detail those, I, th I think that down the road um, minimizes maintenance and, and gives a, makes the materials and, and the buildings last longer. Does that answer what your question? Yes, Sounds like Alor has yeah, something to add. I think that, you know, we're, we're trying not to make a distinction of doing anything different for public housing. So oh, we, okay. we really are treating this as any other market rate, uh, more commercial facility. So, you know, we're always looking at long-lasting, durable materials, uh, things we're not going to have to replace when uh, as frequently when we turn over units. Uh, that may be solid surface countertops as opposed to formica, uh, maybe using more vinyl uh, flooring or ceramic tile instead of carpeting. Um, so those sorts of treatments, which, which are not any different than we would do in a market rate development. Okay. Is that maybe more of what you were? Oh, okay, I see what, yeah. Okay, thank you. Uh -huh. And um, when I went to the site on Wednesday, it's noon, and then I noticed that a lot of people sitting um, outside on the porch, you know, um, so I'm glad that you provided the, uh, the outdoor space, especially the park. But um, I think uh, maybe there are more disproportionately more uh, seniors and children in the public housing. So uh, I noticed that there are two play structures right now. So uh, is there any plan that you might add more for the for the kids? Yes, so we're working right now on a lot of the site amenities. Yeah. We showed on the site plan kind of pockets where we can put either tot lots, where we can put barbecue areas. Uh, we're hoping to have playground areas to serve children of different ages, possibly one for toddlers and ones for children's ages, you know, three to 12. Um, we're hoping to have some outdoor exercise equipment for adults. We'll have uh, benches and picnic areas throughout. Uh, so it was, we had a very little little area and, and that was the landscape site plan that we showed you all. Um, so it was hard to fully show on there all of the amenities that we are proposing, but we are hoping to serve both children um, of all ages as well as adults, so to have amenities that everyone can enjoy. That's really great. And then um, talk to me about the community garden. So I think this will be a great idea for the seniors. So, but it sounds like it will be temporary at that corner before the Richard is realigned. Is that the plan? Um, so we are planning to put it in a place that is not temporary. So the idea was anything that we put in an amenity that we put in that area with something um, we didn't want to overly commit to anything because we were, as, as I think you're alluding to, concerned that people were going to get a little bit too attached to certain amenities that, that may not be there in the foreseeable future. So the community garden is going, it's in kind of the northeast corner of the lot. That is where we're proposing to put it right now. Um, so it would be in an area that um, is not affected by the realignment. Okay, that's great. Thank you. And that's different from the Rose Garden. So you have a separate, that's a community. Yeah, that is separate from the gardens that are internal on within the blocks. And then that is separate from the park. Okay. And then uh, another question is, I noticed there in a lot of public housing, their entrance is, uh, um, is to the each, each individual unit, it's exterior. 
it's just it's safer that way. So I wonder when you lay out your plan, um, is that uh, also the case that in individual units that you don't have to go through a corridor uh, to get into each units, or uh, what's the layout? Well, on, on the on the one on the on the the large four, four story building on the corner, there, there's an elevator and okay. and and there are there are uh, corridor. The others have shared shared stairwells or are town or like townhouse units. So uh, there's not a, a so they're more private. The majority of the units will open up out yeah. into the street. Um, so it, that that is our intent to continue with that sort of urban concept of having eyes on the street and having everyone that integrated outdoor and indoor uh, feel to help with security and help integrate uh, you know the residents into the community. And just. To put a finer point, the, the, the large family units will all have direct access to outside from the unit. Mm -hmm. And in that, that 42 unit building, those are just one and two bedroom units. So all the large families, so children won't have to be in double loaded corridor buildings. That's good. And for the double, uh, for the corridor, uh, is there a design that the corridor can be outside, that uh, um, can be exterior instead of uh, being in a long uh, corridor that inside of the building? It's just, yeah. It's, so yeah. we've um, we've tried to design it as that L shape building. Um, let me see if I can get nice a better one, nice one there. better look at just that. So you'll see that kind of the the main core of that building is where the elevator lobby is. Mm -hmm. So the two wings are shorter corridors, so you're not walking too far. I think there's probably four to five units on either side, so the yeah. corridor isn't terribly long in that building. I don't know. So I understand what you're saying, to try to make it an exterior corridor as opposed to an interior corridor. We just feel as though this this building and this facade being the focal point, we didn't want to have an exterior corridor as what you saw coming up from, from this entrance. And these are smaller, the smaller one-bedroom flats probably better served actually by the interior corridor I see. in this case. Okay, all right. Um, sounds like you put more thoughts into it, so um, thank you, appreciate that. And then um, one question on the um, the 12th, uh, 12th Street. So that is, maybe that's a question for the, for the staff or for the public work. So that's a complete street. But uh, I noticed that that seemed like the only street that doesn't have any uh, planters. So uh, is there any particular reason that uh, it's deliberately leave out? So um, right now, the improvements are just for blocks one and two before you. So we have not started to look at the frontage along 12th Street mm -hmm. um, since those, uh, those will probably be further designed when we go through the site plan for blocks four and five. So that that right now is is the only reason that I can think of why they're not shown in this plan right now. And I would note too that the River District specific plan has all of the uh, street sections in it. And so I think it's just for consistency with that. And if I'm wrong on that, then we can have Public Works uh, address that. But I believe there are, all the street sections have been included in the River District specific plan. So then it's already said that there won't be any planter? 
That's what I'm saying. In, in the River District specific plan that was adopted, we had all the street sections for this area. And so I believe that's how it was adopted. And if I'm, if I'm wrong, Anise can correct me. Evening, Chair Burke, members of the Commission, Anise Cabrillo with Public Works. Uh, Evan is correct. The project is consistent with the River District Plan and all the cross sections that were approved with the River District Plan that affect this area. Uh, Richard, 12th, and W Street, and Dos Rios. All the other internal streets are just uh, also consistent with the River District Plan, what they call them local streets or we residential streets, city standards. <coughs> On 12, this project touches only a small portion of 12th Street. There's a lot of things going on with 12th Street, and that is that we have a cycle track project that's currently the city is going to be implementing, so we're utilizing that width. And there is a future realignment of 12th Street as well that requires a, building a new bridge over the, over the river to improve the overall circulation and intersection spacing that's currently there, specifically the 16 and 12th Street Richard Boulevard intersection with light rail. So uh, the plan is not to have separated sidewalks at this time with that approved section. However, in the future, when we are redoing the 12th Street and it would require a lot larger project, that would be looked at again at that okay. time. But Sounds the project good. has very limited frontage on this street. Got it. Thank you. Uh, I would not dwell on this issue for this um, entitlement. So one question on the uh, tree permit. Um, it seems like there's uh, um, something I read in the report said uh, the whole site will be raised by uh, a few inches, and that was the reason that the 93 trees will be removed. So um, what's the reason that the site would need to be raised? Is that for flood control or for any other? So I'm going to start answering this question, and I'm going to bring up our civil engineer again. Um, so we've been working on a lot of different site issues. Uh, we were working on stormwater retention, um, meeting flood elevations. So a lot of those have resulted in the grades being raised in addition to a lot of the street realignments uh, and, and redoing a lot of those streets to meet code requirements. Um, I'm gonna let Charles get a little bit more detailed into it, but essentially, you know, w when the streets get raised, we have to raise the buildings uh, a couple feet higher so that we meet flood elevation requirements. Um, but I'm gonna let Charles explain that further. So because we're raising the site that has caused what we believe some issues uh, with the trees being able to be maintained since a lot of them do not survive well um, when they're submerged in, in more earth. So if it's a for flood control, is the, the ULOP did not make enough progress to make uh, the site adequate for development? Because that's the uh, one of the funding that we, uh, we ought to um, discover. I, so, um, both your questions kind of go together. Um, so on the site, there's a lot of, there's several factors kind of controlling the site grades. Um, I think that there's two uh, major constraints. That's kind of the overreaching um, controls of the, the site. One of them is kind of what Lauren was just talking about, that in the, the city has a hydraulic model of the existing condition of this entire area. 
And according to that hydraulic model, there's street flooding that occurs right now, uh, pretty significant for, uh, flooding that occurs in Dos Rios Street. And um, our project, of course, is being required to design to current city standards. And in fact, uh, Department of Utilities is considering this a greenfield site, so we have to design this to greenfield standards. And so what that pretty much means, if, if Dos Rios Street was designed today um, to current city standards, that road's at least 12 inches too low. And so we're having to do, so I mean, Dos Rios is an existing street. We can't raise that street, but all of our streets on site, we're having to raise those streets up much higher than the existing condition to get them above that localized street flooding. And um, so that's causing the streets to be raised. The other thing that's um, causing the grades to be uh, raised throughout the site is that we have a pretty challenging um, condition with the storm drainage. Right now, everything goes to the combined sewer system, and we're being um, conditioned and required to take it off the combined sewer system and put it into the separated um, storm drain system without um, raising the existing storm drain um, water surface elevations by more than a tenth of a foot. So as you can imagine, that's pretty difficult to take 20 acres of drainage and stick it in a system where it doesn't go. So the way that we're achieving that is we have some very significant amounts of site detention um, throughout the site, and those detention pond areas have a minimum uh, separation off the ground uh, water uh, elevations. And so what we're doing is we're finding the groundwater elevations, we provide that minimum separation, that's the bottom of the detention ponds, and then we build up from there. So those two things combined are kind of setting a minimum um, elevation throughout the site. And it's, I, I, I used the number and it kind of stuck about two feet, but that's kind of an average at some of the higher points. So when we get down to those reels, we match down to existing, but we are generally raising most of the site up um, due to those two reasons. I see. So flood control and then the drainage. All of these buildings will be well above the. This area is not in a flood in a FEMA flood zone. Um, when we talk about flooding, it's localized flooding. Um, with the with the overall specific plan improvements, um, there's some significant improvements that are going to be done as the overall uh, uh, specific plan develops, including some pump improvements, um, some major infrastructure improvements, those kinds of things. This project will pay a fair share into those. But this project on its own cannot go and fix everything. So we're going to make everything work for our site based off the existing conditions. And then eventually, as everybody else starts coming in and, and paying into a fair share, eventually the city will take that money and do a bunch of improvements that will help alleviate a bunch of the existing problems. We're just, unfortunately, some of the first people on the block. And we have to kind of design to the worst case situation is now. And we don't get some of the benefits for the long term. Uh, and also that I remember there's a um, condition uh, advisory note mentioned that the um, uh, combined sewerage system doesn't allow any construction dewatering. So that's why that uh, the foundation design has to be uh, uh, has to consider this feature. Well, how are you going to support a four store uh, four four story building on the side with a very high uh, groundwater and then the soil capacity is very limited and then not having a, a construction water uh, de dewatering uh, permit could you please comment on this so yeah um, so my understanding of what the condition is and Tony please correct me if I'm wrong if I don't fully understand it but normally the, the dewatering process for during construction uh, 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 could you read the exact condition of what it says uh. 
Because there's two, there's in, in the city standards, they talk about not allowing uh, dewatering. A lot of those times means like the foundation dewatering. Like the city of Sacramento does not allow, if there's a basement or like some really deep footings that have um, footing drains, they don't allow those drains to be connected to the combined sewer system. So any really deep uh, foundation systems that require, uh, they have to be designed so that they don't require to have those footing drains and um, discharges to the combined sewer system. So I'm not sure if that's what the condition is referring to or something else. It's uh, advisory note 17, foundation or basement dewatering discharge right. to combined sewer right. system will not be allowed. Yeah, so these projects don't have any basements to them. And um, so the structural engineer will just have to design these to make sure that there's not required to have any type of, um, like I was just talking about, any of the footing drains to drain out the um, any underground water into those and in, in, in out. It's, that's, a, that's a pretty common um, condition for all of Sacramento. And so it's the, the structural engineers, just, it's, it's a requirement that they just have to design those foundations to that requirement. Okay, I guess this will be figured out in the building department, um, with the building department. My uh, last question is a uh, follow up on condition, uh, on uh, Commissioner Lofaso's question. So it says that uh, uh, the applicants will, has to, will have to establish a financing mechanism uh, to pay the city to maintain the drainage basin. Um, the, uh, so how, who is going to pay, uh, how is the, what's the financial mechanism? Would the, would the residents have to pay into it? So the, the residents themselves will not have to pay. Um, we are still working out the exact mechanism, but we are assuming that it will be uh, like a, a tax that the building will have to pay. So out of our operating expenses, we will account for for a, a maintenance fee to the city to help with the drainage maintenance. And your operating fee will be coming from? Uh... The, the city and I are working to come up. I'm waiting, actually, I'm going to put them on the spot, um, to help us come up with a reasonable estimate so we can account for that in our budget. But we are planning to account for that in our budget, um, and the residents will not have to pay for it. Okay, all right, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Commissioner Wong Conley. Uh, Commissioner Yee. Thank you. Uh, a couple of, maybe one more technical questions too. Uh, you mentioned sustainability strategies with this project, and what I heard, what I thought we heard was uh, strategies relative to the site and the site landscape and such. What is the sustainability feature relative to the buildings themselves? Uh, any enhancements other than code minimums? Uh, yes. So we will be building towards most likely a lead silver or equivalent is what we are aiming towards. Um, so we are just starting the charrette process. We're hoping to start that in the next couple weeks as we start our design development phase. Um, so I was mentioning just some of the things that are typically done or that we have typically done in previous projects, uh, but we will have to go through uh, very carefully with our MEP consultant and with our green consultant to, to make sure that both the site and the building meet the requirements. Okay, so you will have enhancements greater than the code minimum? Yes. Okay, thank you. Um, next, um, how many units are in the project now? So the first two phases are 170 units. 
Right. How many are there now? Oh, how many are in the existing? The existing housing is 218 yeah. units. 218. So that's why we keep mentioning the, the 218 replacement right. units. So within lots one and two will be developed 170 of 218. So the 218, the balance of them, will occur in lots three, four, and five? Yeah, so it's the, the math is a little different. So I'm going to just pull my notes up here um, and have Yusuf come help me. Um, so there are the 218 are public housing units. Mm -hmm. So within the first two phases, we will have 68 of that 218 public housing replacement units. The balance of that 218 will be in lots three, four, five, and we're calling it nine now is, is the parcel that's across 12th Street. So the balance of that 68 from 218 will be in the rest in the rest of the development, as will the balance of the market rate and tax credit units that were required. So funding is in place for lots one and two. Not no. So uh, we're we're in the process of applying for funding for lots one and two. Uh, we will need our entitlements approved in right. order to go through and apply for those right. funding the sequence, sources. So. Entitlement yeah. than yes. funding. Yeah. So that means so because so much of it is outside of lots one and two. What is the assurance that lots one and that the other parcels will be built? Yeah, and that that gets to our our grant agreement with with HUD. Um, we're we're required to do the replacement units and. Uh, we're, we're required under the, the terms of the grant agreement to do it in the, the mixed income program, which is why we're not just coming out of the gate and doing all of the uh, public housing replacement units because it's critical to have that, that economic integration. Um, the, the short of it is we, as I mentioned before, we've, as a as developer, have been uh, the lead developer on, on 10 of these choice neighborhoods. It's a, it's a very significant part of our business. If, if, if we don't deliver, we don't get to do use these programs anymore, and, and, and we go out of business. If, if the city doesn't deliver, they're not going to get um, HUD grants in the future, and so they're going to be cut off from that. Every, everyone is fully committed. We executed an agreement with uh, SHRA, Housing Authority, and the city that has us jointly and severally um, connected uh, for the grant agreement, and so the implementation is, is critical. Understood. Uh, in part, that's dependent on subsidies, tax credits, and such. I guess, the I, I guess I am concerned about the political will of maintaining the credits and the subsidies. And despite everyone's vision and efforts and intent, uh, there could be a significant number of the units, I mean, that may be delayed even longer or not. Is that a possibility that? So, so when looking at worst case scenarios, and, and we're not anywhere near needing to go down that road, we would shift to a program to make sure that we completed the replacement units. Okay, so the priority then becomes the balance of the Absolutely. units. Absolutely, absolutely. whatever that takes. So what are the amenities that the fully built out project will provide and which one of those amenities will be in lots one and two? Yeah, so 
within uh, the main building, that four-story building at the corner on lot one, will be the management offices, leasing offices, resident services. There is a community room, um, a program room where a lot of the, the programs that are currently being utilized uh, by the existing development uh, will be in there. So a lot of the programs that Deco spoke about uh, will have a place in the new building. There will be a computer room, uh, a gym. We're hoping to have a pool, uh, several tot lots, barbecue areas, uh, dog walks. I'm a dog person, so making sure that, that our furry friends are have a place too. Um, so we are really trying to fully amenitize both, both lots uh, with the majority of the indoor amenities all being housed in block one. So those are being sized to appropriately serve the development at large. So they are being uh, sized to serve 400 plus residents. And, and your obligation is to provide the space for it. I mean, other than let's say swimming pool, uh, but to provide the building area for those programs, for those services, or, or is your obligation to provide the services also? So in terms of the services that, that Deco was mentioning and that are in the, the people's portion of the program, uh, we are providing a place for them to come into the community to be able to provide them within close proximity to the residents and make them easily accessible. Um, Urban Strategies, our resident service provider, will work closely to get those programs into that space. Uh, so that is part of what their their task is I don't know if you and, want to and we have funds in our in our operating budgets to, to cover a, uh, a, a community uh, liaison who will who will coordinate that going forward so right now there's the uh, funds on the people side from the choice neighborhood that's providing resources for the intensive case management and those service connections and then we'll have funds in the operating budgets to make sure that we have a sustainability okay. plan because what i was fearful of is that the space is there but the program is not you know assigned to the management office Correct. okay okay uh lastly to the parking lot and the phrase sea of asphalt is mentioned a number of times so the question is what in the design of the parking lot and the area immediately surrounding the parking lot, what is there that's a, that is um, more than the city parking development requirements? Is there any enhancements there? Because quite frankly, I see a sea of asphalt. So there will be significant landscaping there and there are landscape buffers between the parking area and each of the buildings. Um, they're not as well defined, I think, on any of the site plans. I'm going to pull up the landscape plan so we can see it. Um, we we may be able to add some shade structures. We just are not fully committed to that yet. We're going to have to see what space is available. We have some requirements uh, making sure that, you know, there's service trucks that are able to come within that space to provide either electrical repair service, garbage trucks. Um, so we're limited a little bit by that, but we are trying to shade the majority of that parking lot as best we can and obscure the view from, from the residential units into that space. I would hazard to guess that with the number of vehicles you are wishing to park in that area, 
that to break it up into smaller, I'm referring to your diagram here of lot one, that to have two smaller parking areas would result in fewer parking spaces and not hit your goal. Is that correct? So in trying to reduce the uh, asphalt area? Yeah, so again, one of the, the driving forces is having internal circulation for some of these service vehicles. And if we, you know, if we do split them up, and I understand what you're saying, uh, we, we won't be able to provide. We're pretty tight in being able to provide that requirement, meet that requirement right now. Um, so that is one of the one of the reasons that this design was implemented this way. Um, and then I'm going to let Yusef kind of chime in on just some historical data that we have about parking. I, um, I think that's, I think that's okay. okay. Yeah, I, okay. I, there, there are public speakers and there are other commissioners who want to speak, so I, I, that okay. answers my question. But, but we have reduced the parking, um, I don't know, significantly, but we have reduced the parking to try to come up with what we think is a reasonable amount of parking given the demographic, given the neighborhood, given it's still, you know, a little bit isolated from the rest of downtown and public transit is not quite where it needs to be. Um, so we were cognizant of that in the design and layout of this, and that's kind of what, what contributed. To Thank you. Well, being mindful of time and other speakers, I will yield. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Yee. Um, Commissioner Bodipa, uh, member. Thank you, Chair Burke. Uh, I'll try to be brief. Uh, just a quick question, and this could be for anyone. Is, is there a lighting plan for the project, and particularly related to the outdoor spaces? Um, we have not done a lighting plan as of yet. Uh, we fully intend to light the entire site, make sure that it is lit and secured. Uh, there will be overhead lights as well as bollards, landscape lighting, um, that is just not included in the preliminary package. So right now, the, the, the park areas, there, there's plans for there to be opportunities for night activities because I, I remember Ms. Gilmore talked about kids hitting the ball out there and imagine during the daytime you got school. Right. As it relates to the park specifically, uh, we will work with the Parks Department to meet the requirements I, I don't necessarily know that it that is a requirement of the Parks Department, but if it is, we will certainly provide them, or if that is a request of, of the community when we start going through the charrettes, then we will certainly have those there. Staff, maybe could you, uh, is it standard for that part? And I would note too that there's a lot of street frontages along there, so there'll be um, street lighting as well, but um, uh, that's typically something that's addressed in uh, the park's master plan. So I'd anticipate that would be the case. Thank you, Mr. Compton. Uh, just another, just quick follow-up. Traffic calming was referenced in the staff report. Um, in certain areas where traffic calming would be required, in other areas where um, the city has the uh, ability to, to ask the applicant to include traffic calming measures. I just wanted to question whether traffic calming uh, will be considered on Richards Boulevard at all, or would that only be on the interior components of the, of the project? I'm going to defer that one to Anise Gobril and Public Works. Thank you. Right, to answer that question, there will not, if I understand it right, you asked if there will be traffic calming on Richards. Uh, 
Yeah, and would that be a consideration at any point? It will not be, okay. or 12. It would be more on the internal streets, and in this type, it would be more like bulb outs and, and stuff like that if there's a need to do it. And, and just what, what are the traffic speeds that go along Richards Boulevard right now? I think it's supposed to 35 to 40 miles per hour in two different sections. It is an arterial. Oh. Gotcha. And I think that's, that's the only traffic question I have. And then one last question uh, for the project applicant. Um, to follow up on, on Commissioner Yee's question, uh, the first phase contains somewhere in the 60 units of comparative of, of the units that are being lost. Uh, have you ever failed to, to build out a project in the past? Or, or I know that, again, your reputation kind of leans on that, but that's one of the, the pieces that's important. Sure. So um, to, to, to give a, a fair answer, the one-for-one -one replacement requirement is actually something that's new in the, the Choice Neighborhoods program. So it may have been aspirational in some parts of Hope 6, but that was all dependent upon uh, whatever that local program was. In Choice Neighborhoods, uh, we have not missed that mark. Uh, we wouldn't have been successful in getting other grants if, if, if we did, and we're on, we're on pace to do so in those other areas. And, and just to add, we've, we've been brought into Miami and into other communities where developers spent the HUD grant and didn't deliver on the units, and we came in and, and were able to deliver on those, those other promises that were made prior to us going there. So we have a strong track record in, in that regard. So not to take this down the road too far, but for something like Harmony Oaks, I yeah. mean, you're still in process. Have, have you met that, that goal we, there? We finished Harmony Oaks, okay. um, and, and that wasn't a choice neighborhoods. That was one of the last Hope Sixes. And there, uh, at the time of the storm, there were about 140 households that were, that were living there. We did 193 replacement units on the public housing side, about 144 uh, affordable units, about 125 market rate units. And so we replaced more than was occupied at the time of the storm. And then just last follow-up, I'll, I'll yield. In terms of the phasing and the timing, again, I know the market's going to have the impact on the, yeah. the real schedule, but when would you estimate build-out? Uh, of the, the entire site? Correct. That's that's a challenging question. Um, I think can you you did the last schedule, so can you remind me where we had the last phase? Twenty twenty four, I think, for the for the final phase. Yeah. Thank you very much. Sure. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Commissioner Bodiga Member. Uh, before we get to additional commissioner comments, uh, I'm going a little out of order of the agenda. It's going to get late, so I just want to. I know folks have to leave, so. I want to take a public comment now. Um, if you haven't filled out a slip, there's slips in the back. Please present to the commission secretary. But I like to go with Patty uh, Klein, Klack, Kleinkinek, and Malachi Amon. Patty left. Patty left. Malachi Amon. Good evening, Mr. Chairman and Commissioners. My name is Malachi Amen. I am a resident of District 5, president of the California Urban Partnership, which is an organization that works to build economic security in low-income communities of color. 
Uh, I also have a very uh, intimate uh, relationship with Dos Rios. You know, there are all these changes in names of Twin Rivers and and that sort of thing. But, um, you know, I still refer to it as the Dos. Um, and um, first, first thing that I want to say is we have an awesome staff at Sacramento Housing and Redevelopment Agency. And, and I just want to praise uh, Lachelle Dozier and Tyrone Williams for the awesome work that they are doing in an incredibly difficult housing uh, uh, shortage and affordability uh, climate. Um, this certainly is an incredible opportunity for Sacramento. Um, the developer is absolutely amazing. Uh, I've, I've, I've had a chance to see some of their, their work. Um, but there are some concerns about this particular project because we're looking at uh, we're we're looking at uh, and I'm going to try to fit this within the one minute thirty seconds that I have. But we're looking at sending residents into an environment where we have a shortage of of, of housing and affordable housing and an incredible you know, insensitivity to racial wealth gaps uh, in the city. So you know, I'm, I'm very concerned about um, the ability of the, res the current residents to be able to, to find uh, replacement housing. Uh, um, our organization is concerned about how um, the time span will work to deliver the replacement housing. Uh, and so in that regard, we're wondering if, um, you know, there's a way to certainly move this project forward, but perhaps, you know, provide some conditions uh, that would require perhaps, you know, greenhouse gas emissions reductions, uh, funds materializing before, um, you know, the demolition occurs and, and maybe try to shrink this potential time period of seven years uh, before the replacement uh, happens. Uh, gentrification is a huge issue in the city and that represents um, um, tremendous uh, political and economic consequences for African Americans, uh, particularly those who live in these kinds of projects who are victims of the drug war. Uh, we don't see any type of movement to, to, to use, you know, marijuana legalization <laughs> funds to replace these houses. So. You know, those are the concerns, and I know I'm out of time, but um, uh, uh, we really think this project is a great project, but, you know, we're, we're asking for the city to, to be um, very thoughtful about how to ensure that the financial resources are there uh, before demolition uh, occurs. Thank you so much, Mr. Allman. Thank, Thank you. you. And we have Mr. Howard Jones. Hi there, I'm Howard Jones. I've been in Dos Rios for over 20 years. I've been a caretaker of that property for about 18 years. And I am the transportation guy. When people need to go to the store, I take them. Sometimes I need gas. A lot of times I don't. But, I mean, I try and keep my community whole. I try to keep everybody happy, not only because 
I'm the caretaker there, but because it's an honor to see people smile and enjoy their lives. But this program is a great program. I've been a part of all five stipend committees. And what they're doing now, especially with urban strategies, helping people get job training, get jobs, and do things they didn't think they could do with their lives. And that's another positive thing. And um, what they're planning on doing with the rebuilding of the community, especially Richards Boulevard, where the average speed limit is 50 miles an hour, not 40 or what is posted on there, not 20, not 35, but 50. And all of our streets get blocked off on rush hour where we can't get out on Richards. So, I mean, this realignment, the program, the people that are working with us to help us make it happen, everything is going great. And I'm very happy that they're working with us and helping us out and doing what they have to do to make it happen. Um, if there was anything I was dissatisfied with, I can't say I was dissatisfied with anything other than the timing it took to get this far. I've been through six or seven different redevelopments in a community. One woke me up at two in the morning and when I was going to college. And that wasn't good because I had to be in college for six hours. And um, I mean, finally we're getting the whole thing rebuilt, a new start, a new day, and no add-ons, add no extras. And I'm glad that Urban Strategies and um, Baron Salazar is all coming together to make it work. And um, that's just it. That's all I have to say. Thank you so much, Mr. Jones. Uh, we'll return back to Commissioner comments, questions. Uh, Commissioner Lindsay. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chair. Um, I had a question about services, and it was uh, touched on by Commissioner Yee. And I, I, I do think that it's an, it's extremely important component for the success of this um, of this development. And um, I appreciated the explanation that was given that um, Urban Strategies will be a partner and coming in to provide services to the residents. Um, we have uh, Isaac Dozier uh, from Urban Strategies who's here. Oh. Um, he can answer any of the detailed questions like Ms. Well, I, I don't have a question. My question, my question to start with was what kind of services will you be offering? And so th throughout the testimony and then the question that Commissioner Yee asked, um, my question was answered. And so okay. I, I appreciate the explanation. And, and then... Uh, in terms of the land use and then um, the sustainability of this project, um, preserving and upholding the community standards in, in terms of maintenance of the infrastructure, the dwellings, the common areas, some of the public facilities, uh, it had been mentioned in other testimony that um, the, the community as it stands now was, was adequately maintained. So I, I wanted to know what is in, going to be in place to um, keep this community up to the standards um, as it, it is first presented to those moving into the area. Um, 
And and how is this going to be financed? I, I think it's one thing to, to be really clear that in the past we have a vision of public housing as it currently is. When this project is developed, there will not be the ability to determine or to point out that this is public housing. It is designed to look, function as any market rate housing development in the city of Sacramento or in any other city. And so as we move forward with our development partners, um, the operations budgets are the same as they would be maintained at a market rate unit. Um, the expectation of how the public spaces will be maintained, those that are under the control of the developer, are the developer's responsibility. And we have a developer who has a national reputation for stellar award-winning, not only physical properties, but property management as well. As it relates to those properties that are under the control or in partnership with the city, our expectation, as we've already begun to have ongoing conversations to ensure that the city portion and properties of this development are properly maintained by the city in cooperation with our development partner. And the operations budget that comes from? As in any real estate uh, or any project, the operations budget is uh, a portion of the revenue that's generated from the rental income. Okay. In this okay. case, um, the public housing units, the affordable housing, and the market rate units, uh, the income that comes from those three categories of housing will make up the entire operations uh, budget for the properties. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you, Commissioner Lindsay. Commissioner Ogilvie? Thank you. Um, I have a, a few questions, I guess, first for Mr. Framey. Am I saying your last name right? Freeman. Freeman. Freeman? Freeman. Okay. Yeah. Um, I guess my first question, maybe it's not for you, but I understand the existing property is pretty old and probably needs a lot of repair. What, what would happen? What's the fate of that community if this project doesn't move forward? I think that's more of a housing authority okay. question Sorry. probably. So as I mentioned earlier, uh, the project was built in the early to mid-1940s and then uh, expanded upon in the 1960s. And so I think to our uh, public housing staff's credit, they do everything they can to maintain the current physical structures. But what you don't see is under the ground the infrastructure is failing. Um, you know, we, we hear about the issues with the stormwater drainage, the joint uh, sewer, um, you know, electrical issues, not being able to use the plugs, things like that. Um, there comes a point where from 1996 to today, we get a proration of, of public housing funds, as, as Yusuf said, that, you know, Congress continues to lower. Um, and so you, you come to a point that eventually you don't have enough resource to maintain all 218. I'm just being brutally honest here, is that we will maintain them as long as we can. We'll keep them occupied as long as we can. We'll do everything we, we can to keep the physical structures up. But at some point, if you're getting, you know, a, a portion of what you need to maintain and that portion is over, you know, has been going on for years and years, you're, you're going to eventually have a failure that you're not going to have the ability to go in and, and fix quickly. And it can be addressed and it can be, you know, different things can be done. But um, 
you, you have to look at the longevity and useful life of a facility, and I think it is fair to say, and part of our application to HUD was to clearly document that useful life and what it takes to, uh, to bring it back to standard in its current condition, and they opted to give us a $30 million grant to replace it. So um, that is part of what this, this grant and this program and this development is about, is that um, we, we have maintained it, we will continue to maintain it, but the long-term longevity and life of this project, it, it, it cannot maintain and, and continue to house 218 households in perpetuity into the future. But what was the useful life that you, you stated? So uh, you had to go in and you do a very detailed uh, analysis of what the current infrastructure, um, the current uh, condition of like say all your different systems, so your roof, your electrical, your, your actual, you know, your installation, all the different things you would do on a building. Then you look at um, what the sewer needs the, uh, and, and the uh, basic uh, layout of the, of the common areas, things like that. You look at all those, you look at what it takes to replace it and or maintain it to a current modern standard. So then you take what that, that cost structure is uh, for a similar type of development that is more modern and, and relevant. And so I think, um, and, and, and I can't be specific because I don't have it in front of me, but we were um, in, in excess of 300 million to, to, uh, to have to, to have $300 million in our current accounts to bring the property up to standard. So hence why they, they gave us the grant to spend $300 million to build a new project. I understand that. I'm just wondering what the time frame is. If you could just, like, is there five years left on the property, 10 years, 20? Hard, hard to say in terms of it, it's when you get a catastrophic failure, right? Um, so if we get a catastrophic failure to a system, then we're going to have to go in and address it. Our capital, uh, capitalized reserves for public housing um, through the recession were diminished. Um, so, you know, that would mean that potentially you had to take units offline, wait a couple of years to build up the reserve and fix the full, the full thing, and then you could bring them back on, but then you have a gap of where you didn't have units in, in place. And then we also don't make a certain amount of, of, of funding in terms of a HUD's support for the program because we have units offline. So it, it is kind of a, a circular um, death spiral over time. Thanks for that. Mm -hmm. I think, Mr. Freeman, you can come back now. Um, I just wanted to understand what it means when you say every tenant has a right to return. Is that at any time or is it like on opening day have your application in hand and be ready to move tomorrow. Yeah, so every, every resident's gonna have a right to return. Um, it's gonna be based on the availability to right size that, that household with the, the correct um, number of bedrooms and the, uh, the correct uh, income type. And so when they come up, then they'll be, say, hey, there's a unit that's there for you. Would you, would you like this unit? Um, if the resident decides that, no, they're not ready to move, or they, in the case of, of, of New Orleans, when, when folks were dispersed all over the country, some folks ended up in better neighborhoods than they had ever been in before. Their kids were in schools that they liked. Their, um, they, had, they had jobs, so they wanted to stay in that case. Uh, we didn't revoke their, their right to return, but they go then to the bottom of, of the wait list. And so if they came back and said, hey, you know what, we would like to come back, we would be addressing the other returning residents before they got addressed. But once everyone was back, then as another public housing replacement unit opened, they would have that first priority for that unit if they wanted it. 
So in, in phase one and two of the 68 public housing replacement units, are you obliged to leave them vacant in the event that somebody decides to come back in four months when their current lease is up and they can finally leave? Or you? Yeah. So of, of you know, so we have 218 households. We'll, we'll go through them. Um, I couldn't imagine a circumstance where we wouldn't fill them with with folks who aren't uh, currently on site. But beyond that, if that if that did happen, then it would go to the housing authorities' uh, uh, Section Eight waiting list. Um, I think that's it. I have a question for is it Mr. Williams with SHRA? Um, you touched briefly on maybe you're evaluating how many public housing units are available or will become available in Sacramento and the region. <coughs> Is that going to be available in advance of the council hearing next month? Yes. Um, as part of our initial uh, work with the county and the city to develop a plan to begin to address homeless issues in the city with housing choice vouchers, the county and the city um, were uh, made aware of that the relocation process for Twin Rivers would be occurring at the same time, and they unanimously agreed that the Twin Rivers residents would have priority preference on all vacant public housing units um, that met their needs if that was their decision to move into public housing. And so that is the one housing source that we control, and we uh, will be working to manage those available units as closely as possible to the needs of those residents who express an interest into moving back into public housing during this building um, transition period. Have a sense of how many units are available or? Well, the units are, um, at this point, units are uh, across the, the county. Some are being filled and some are, um, there's, there's constant turnover. Once this project is approved, and our expectation that it will be unanimously approved on August the 22nd. Um, we will then begin to work with uh, our families and uh, through urban strategies and through the work of um, our assistant director staff and identifying which families would like to move into public housing. At this point, we're not just going to not fill public housing, not knowing, particularly given the, the, the need for housing, without coming to an understanding of how many residents want to move into public housing and which public housing um, communities they have an interest in moving. They have a, a say in that as well. And is there a plan if what's in place if someone can't find housing? Um, the, that is not an option. That's an obligation. That's an obligation that SHRA has. That's an obligation that our partners of Urban Strategies have joined with us. That's an obligation that our consultant, that our relocation consultant happens. SHRA is at the forefront of dealing with the homeless problem in the city and the county. And we, and we are committed that none of the 28 households at Twin Rivers falls into the cyclist cycle of homelessness because of relocation associated with this project. Um. I have some questions just really quickly on the architecture and design. <clears throat> and maybe Ms. Levant, you want to come up as well. I think we had a little correspondence back and forth in the email and to follow up on Commissioner Z's 
comments about the um, sea of asphalt. I had asked the question if you'd be willing to do some of the the actual parking spaces, you know, as permeable paving to maybe reduce some of the heat island effect and help with some of the storm stormwater management issues. Is yes, we just um, right. we definitely may very well have a significant portion of the parking lot as pervious pavers. Uh, we just, as we get further into the design, we'll see exactly what proportion of the site. But there will be, um, I think, definitely a significant amount of that throughout both the pedestrian areas and parking areas. Um. Another question related to green features. I imagine you might have a good amount of PVs or and or solar hot water. Are you going to put the mechanical units also on the roof? Because that's often a challenge to. Not at this time, no. At this time, what we're looking at is actually the majority of the mechanical would be individual units with, within the unit. We are just talking with SMUD and uh, just got our MEP folks on board now as of today, basically, uh, to make this. So I don't think we will be having mechanical units on the, on the roof, if that's your question. Yeah, it is. So they would be, you would have heat pumps that are ground-mounted? Uh, looking like, we're not sure yet, but probably, maybe heat pumps, yes. It's, it's probably going to be at, at the anticipation, although it's not confirmed yet, is that it will be an all-electric, uh, everything will be electric, so... Um, and then just a comment. What's that? Am I answering your question? I think so. What would your concern is to try to hide them so that they're is, not? You're, the, you're, okay, you're concerned about what you're seeing on the roof. Is that on the roof and or on the ground? Okay, yeah. Being yeah. Ground mounted. Yeah. Yeah. So I, we we are just getting into our MEP design. Um, I I recently moved from Florida, where all of the HVAC units are on the roofs of all of them. Um, so I know that it's possible, and we can certainly try to landscape if they end up that they are on the ground floor. But we, we honestly are just getting into that the MEP design portion of the project, so we haven't fully worked through the location of those. Okay. Um, and in the staff report, it mentions that there's going to be um, window shading on the south and west elevations and it looked like in the elevations there was just a note that referred to the south elevation so I might just want to yeah they just the I, I think the intent is for both of those elevations to be uh, to have those shade structures and features uh, they just were not updated on the elevation so I apologize for that and the determination between the metal siding and stucco base is that going to be Economic decision or probably <laughs> yeah um, our, our hope is always to try to do uh, the most vibrant uh, eye-catching material but we also do have to be mindful of costs we are trying to leverage the funds to get as many units as possible um, so at the end of the day we're gonna just have to, have to make that decision based on on what's economically feasible and what's wood look siding, like fiber cement siding that has the wood patterns yeah, in it? Yeah, fiber okay. cement or the, the, either the, yeah, fiber cement. All my questions. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Ogilvy. Uh, Vice Chair Lucian. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Um, I believe 
that the questions, the following questions that I have would probably be for Mr. Freeman, uh, if he wouldn't mind coming up. Um, and I'm going to go through them really quickly, as quickly as I can. Um, the first question is this. Uh, is the funding for supporting an alternative location for the residents, is that funded by HUD? Um, number two, if so, um, how long does that funding last? And three, if the project's delayed, uh, is there a risk that these residents may be stuck in a different location to the extent that the funding does have a term? So I'm, I'm, I'm going to need to turn the relocation question over to the Housing Authority, but I can step Um, SHRA has already got the funding in order to be able to fund the first phase of the actual relocation. As we, with regard to residents actually being stuck, they will still have a voucher if that's what their choice is. And so that voucher will endure until they decide to get up, give up that voucher. So there's, it's not going to term out for them. Got it. Uh, I, I think that's good enough for me for now. Um, to the extent that residents who currently live at the site, their incomes improve to a level that enables them to uh, perhaps, I don't know if the correct term is qualify or not, for the affordable or the market rate units. Uh, it wasn't clear to me, although some commissioners touched on it, would they be excluded from consideration for the public housing units? No, not at all. So in, in some cases, uh, we've seen where 30% uh, of your income is actually higher than paying the market rate. And so it makes sense then for a public housing resident to move into a market rate unit instead of continuing to pay 30% of their income. So that's, that's what I was getting at. Um, it was mentioned that, uh, and this is probably another relocation question, it was mentioned that each resident would receive three referrals for housing, I believe. Um, and it was also mentioned that they would receive options for relocation inside the city limits and I believe outside as well. Um, what is the likelihood that, you know, two or three of those options that re they receive um, for housing during this relocation phase are outside of the city or even possibly outside of the county? A lot of that will be based upon their desires. And let me also clarify, they will receive a minimum of three options in terms of relocation. So we're basically going to make sure that we exhaust every option possible to, until we are able to make sure that the um, households are relocated. Okay. Will they receive a minimum number of offers inside the city or within a certain radius of where they live now? That's all based upon their, their desire. So we're going to be talking, each household will be interviewed and in those interviews, the residents will indicate if they want to live inside the city or outside the city. And so we will utilize that information as well as look at the inventory overall in order to be able to determine how many choices we will provide inside as well as outside. Okay. But you have the final say on that. Is that correct? Notwithstanding the resident engagement. We will work with the residents. We're not trying to determine for the residents, but we will help guide the residents in the process to make sure they're able to find a place that's adequate for them. Okay, but I, do you make the final determination? We do not make the final determination. We just work with the residents in order to try to identify something. They make the final determination on that? Yes. All right. 
Um, my understanding is that um, in, in your presentation, Mr. Freeman, that no building uh, on site or structure on site would be segregated based on income tiers. The market rate units would not be divorced physically from uh, the affordable units, the um, public housing units. Uh, is that is that correct? Correct. Okay. So the the numbers that I believe you gave: sixty-eight public housing, sixty-two affordable. If I copied this down correctly, and then the forty market rate. Right. Um, will all um, be included in each and every structure that's developed? That's that's our plan. Absolutely. I I, I couldn't think of a reason why not. And I would push. We will make from from our development company's point of view that is 100 percent what we will advocate for and push and i cannot think of a circumstance of why it wouldn't be that way sounds like a condition uh there, there's no condition uh but there's also not oh for you to put on it sounds like a condition i would i would welcome it i would like you to entertain i, I would um, I, we would welcome it okay um approximate total cost i wasn't sure that i was clear on that of the entire development is that 300 million for for the full build out, yeah, it's about three hundred million. Okay, and you've received thirty million thus far. Of of uh, grant funds, yes. Okay, so you you are anticipating a combination of perhaps state and local funding, uh, as well as private financing to right. make up the two hundred and seventy million that's left. That's right. Okay. Um, and for these types of projects, that's that's pretty standard. Okay. I bless you. I, I know. I it's a big that. number. And if it was easy, everyone would be doing it. Understood. Understood. Um, given that, um, and given the concerns that were raised about ongoing federal funding that uh, is appropriated, however frequently it, it is appropriated, um, and I noticed the condition, I'm kind of uh, fusing maybe two separate things. I noticed that there was a condition uh, before us dealing with the establishment of some type of Mellow Rouge district to fund parks. Um, I don't even know if this question makes sense, but I'll throw it out because I couldn't figure it out myself. Uh, and this would probably be more so for staff, perhaps. Was the, has any consideration been given to maybe establishing um, a Mellow Rouge district to the extent that it is legal? Um, to fund sort of the ongoing operations um, that would uh, reduce the shortfall that it, it seems like operators in this space expect from the federal government? I don't have a response for that. I, I, I don't know. I don't know, Anise, if you, you know, since you work on SRC conditions, if you want to take a step at that one. You know, 
it, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. I, don't worry about it. I, I think I can, I can work through some of these other ones. And apologize, I got caught off guard. So you, if you wouldn't mean, uh, uh, repeat the question, I'll try to answer it. It sounds like a parks don't question. Don't worry about it. I mean, For the sake uh, of time, uh, I, I'd like special to, districts. For the sake of time, I'd like to just respectfully keep it moving. Okay. So, so you're good. Thank you. Um, and then I think the last question that I had was. Um, there going to be any gating between the uh, between the the various structures? So, in terms of it being a, a gated community, no. In terms of keeping the community connected, so there are protected areas in between buildings where, for for safety purposes, to connect the buildings. Yes. Okay. Okay. Um, all right. Thank you. That, those are all the questions that I uh, had, Mr. Chair. I yield. Thank you, Mr. Vice Chair. Commissioner LaFossa. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chair. Um, I punched up for a couple follow-up questions to Mr. Freeman about all this financing stuff, but hold up for one minute, please. Two prefatory questions. Prefatory question number one, Mr. Chairman, uh, is the public comment period closed? No, Mr. <coughs> Commissioner LaFossa. We're going to have an additional public comment. I just want to get the folks who have to Okay, leave. okay. I just wanted to, uh, uh, maybe you appreciate the reason I asked that question is because motions would be in order if it were closed, but they are not. Appreciate the answer. Mr. Heron. So um, we didn't connect this week, but I've been intrigued for a long time while we don't get more affordable housing projects. And for a long time, I thought it was a jurisdictional issue, and I've been sort of chewing on that question for a while. Not exactly the question I wanted to ask you. Um, I'm going to ask Mr. Freeman a couple more of these financing questions, but apropos to um, Mr. Sekouaman's concern about potentially, he's the first public speaker, um, potentially, say, conditioning going forward on the project upon receipt of a certain subsidy. His example was the cap-and-trade funds. Um, is that within our jurisdiction? Because that's kind of a financing issue, and that's where the rest of my comments are going to go. Yes, and I, I'm not sure I would phrase it as a jurisdictional question, but I, but I would also caution you that uh, you've got to be careful about conditions that would make uh, the, the provision of the affordable housing component of this project infeasible because I think this project falls within the protections of the Housing Accountability Act, which specifies and circumscribes our ability to deny a project or to condition it in such a way that it makes the affordable component. I think uh, at this component, it's clearly over the 20 percent units. Uh, you can't make it infeasible. And so to start trying to craft conditions that had to do, I, I actually didn't even quite understand the greenhouse gas comment that that was made. And the bottom line is just saying that a certain phase can't go forward until a state agency approved a certain funding I think that subset. would be inappropriate. Okay. Okay. I won't belabor the, the law. I, I get the Housing Accountability Act, and I did get the impression that it's, you're not going to like this phrasing. It's an effects test, not an intent test. It's not that we tried to make it infeasible. It's that the condition, regardless of the intent, in fact made it infeasible. Correct. Appreciate that. Okay. Um, Mr. Freeman, I want to let you sit down for just a couple more minutes while I ask that. So I, I do think we need to rein ourselves a little bit on the financing questions, and I think I appreciate all the questions you've asked. But to a question that um, 
Commissioner Yee asked about, you know, what happens if political will didn't result in the funds. And just to sort of, I mean, there's a lot of money going around, and I don't want to get you too bogged into the details. Uh, Mr. Ross, I think, sort of suggests there might be some savings from that, all that maintenance funding that we would otherwise have to spend apropos to um, uh, Commissioner Ogilvie's question. I guess that, that runs out. Um, I'm just going to say uh, that bond 4% tax credit stuff, that stuff's not competitive right now. So we, there's, a pretty, there's a very, very high probability you're going to get that. Just promise me you're going to apply for that in 2018 because one day that will become competitive. 19, 20, 21, don't know when. Please apply for it in 2018. Absolutely. After we get that, um, uh, I have some knowledge of this, but I'm not, I wouldn't call myself an expert. Probably nine, the 9% 9 credits are probably the next thing that you probably could get. I'll tread lightly on this question, but as it relates to the cap-and-trade funds, my understanding of that program is you kind of got to get the cog on your side. And I'm hoping somebody's worked closely with SACOG to make this a priority because my understanding of that program, if, if SACOG doesn't prioritize this, uh, we're not going to get there. And with all due respects to my favorite city, um, SACOG region has gotten very little out of the last two cap-and-trade rounds. And the most successful city to get anything out of cap-and-trade, my belief, is West Sacramento. So with all that sort of, sort of probability stack, you answered uh, Commissioner Yee's question. This sense. If it got really bad, worst-case scenario, not there. You said that. I'm repeating that. Mm -hmm. You said you'd concentrate on making sure we got the 218 replacement units. So I got two questions bearing on that. One, what of these additional funding sources do you absolutely got to get to get your 218 replacement units? Sure. And forgive me, but I'm going to have to kind of okay. go, go to your, your preface uh, a little bit as well just to acknowledge um, your statements about the, the, the different sources. Absolutely, the, the, the bond financing is, is non-competitive. We will be submitting an application in 2018. Uh, we will be submitting an application in this round for the, uh, the cap-and-trade funds. Uh, SACOG is a, is a partner with us. We've had numerous uh, meetings with them and their support with SHRA, the Housing Authority, the city. Uh, Regional Transit is going to go in as, as a partner with us. Um, and so that, that gives us a, a additional leverage within that competition. And you're absolutely right. Sacramento has not fared well. And our consultant that we have working with us uh, on the application, as, as well as SACOG, really view this project as one uh, that brings the components together. Um, SHRA has been diligent in, in working with the state and in, in bringing um, the, the, the two departments that that administer that program, the, the department heads out to Twin Rivers and, and giving them an overview, and, and they agreed that this is the type of project that, that they're looking to fund. And so with the additional funds that are going to be available in this round, in addition to some infill infrastructure grant funds that uh, the, the uh, Metcalf has, has said have, have come back and will be a, a part of this next round of the cap-and-trade as well, um, we, we think that we are truly strategically placed to, to be competitive for those funds as well. All that being said, you're absolutely right. It's, it's not guaranteed. Um, the 9% credits, that's going to be a, a challenge for us to get to. And, and so when we look at uh, the structuring and um, 
Vice Chair Lucien, you know, and, and as, as we think about things that could potentially hamper our ability to have that full economic integration, um, there are some questions about whether or not a, a mixed income program can be competitive for those 9%. We're going to be spending a lot of time with, uh, with TCAC. Um, to, to educate them on this and, and to, to at least remove any barriers that would uh, be a detriment for us to be competitive, and that's, that's part of our process for this year as well. Um, but in terms of, of the sources you know, we need, these HUD calls them mixed finance projects. We do these all over the country. It's not uncommon for a single phase to have six subordinate loans in, in the capital stack from, from, from different sources. Um, and so I, I wouldn't say there's one. If we don't get it, we're, we're, we're walking away. Um, but the, the tools that are in the, the toolbox for the state, we need to strategically place ourselves to be competitive for them to move the program at, at the rate that would be appropriate for, for the residents in the community. Appreciate that. And I really wasn't trying to box you in on the question. So I was trying to think of next steps. So if, if you have to scale back, I, I guess, in essence, what you would do is you'd build lot A and you'd defer lot B for some period of time. Uh, we, we'd build lot A. Um, these two first phases, we're, we're, we're very confident about the, the financing for those because in addition to the, the, uh, the, the, the choice funds, we have project-based vouchers, we have gap funds. Um, that we've applied for that we're confident we're going to get from SHRA. We're going to go in for the cap and trade. Um, we're, we're very confident for the, for the first two phases. We're going to build out the whole program. Um, you know, it, it, it will get more challenging as, as, as things progress. But, but what's, what's most important for, for everyone up here to understand is because of this, this, uh, political environment that we're in at, at, at a federal level, the eyes are on us, right? We, we have to deliver on this program. We have to spend these funds before the deadline because if anything gets recaptured by HUD, then that becomes the stump of this is why we don't fund affordable housing. This is why we can't do these big neighborhood transformation projects, and it will have national implications. So it, it, is, it is critical that, that we implement what we say we're going to implement here, and we're confident we can do that. Okay, again, I'm not trying to amplify the case for anything but stellar success, but I appreciate that. Maybe I won't belabor the, the consequences. I was just wondering if it's feasible if for some reason you ran short of tax credit dollars and you had what you had to you know, do the replacement units, if you would ever envision uh, subbing out some uh, market rate units for some of the affordable units on the theory that you could ultimately make the project pencil with rental revenues rather than some kind of tax subsidy revenues. Oh, you're saying bring in more market rate than doing affordable? Is that is that the question? Uh, for feasibility, not, not that it's a not that it's a suggestion. Yeah, yeah. Not that it's popular. Yeah. But just to keep the project whole, if you had a a gap in your yeah. tax credit financing, could you fill that gap? By adjusting, I know I'm going to get slammed for well, no, not pushing for the, the for every the irony, affordable unit. But. The irony of these types of projects in neighborhoods um, that have not had the investment over a long period of time is that we're ultimately creating the market. 
and and we're leveraging the the, the tax credit equity and the the bond financing of the affordable and the, and those those gap funds that are available to be able to deliver market rates that market rate units that without that subsidy could could never be built. You couldn't go to that site today and go get a traditional market rate equity investor and go get a lender and say we're going to do this you know 100% market rate project. So actually at, at this point if if the gaps got to be too much we would actually have to do more affordable units as crazy as that sounds no it it doesn't sound crazy i i, I understood your answer yeah i appreciated it um thank you thank you uh commissioner fossil before we go to commissioner kaufman last call for public comment no more public comment anyone public comment seeing none public comment is closed uh commissioner kaufman Thank you, Mr. Chair. Mr. Freeman, just a quick conversation here. So you are the most optimistic person I have seen in a long time, and I love it. Wow, in my office, I'm the resident pessimist, so thank you. <laughs> I'm very much in sync with your vision of uh, economic integration and mixed-income community. It's a topic that we've been talking about in many different forums here for quite some time. Let's talk about the logic of that, because I, I just want to be clear in my head about why you think this is marketable at market rates. I assume you think that the amenities are competitive with any pure market rate project, and that because this is a distressed community uh, for a variety of reasons that will persist for some time, that the rates will be lower than any other market rates. Is that, is that the general logic behind why you think market rates are going to be attractive? There? That and just kind of going back to 2012 and going back to that overall 800-unit vision that, that you, were, you were talking about, um, the, the potential for this neighborhood is immense, and it will take time uh, to, to fulfill that, that potential. But... The fact that, that RT so quickly got on board with, with building a station right there, I mean, and, and the residents have said for so long, you know, they see that train just go right through the community, right by the community without stopping. And when I, uh, when I came up here with, with uh, our named partner, Tony Salazar, you know, it's like, can we just get it to stop? Can we just get it to stop there? Um, we really see that and uh, the amenities and this, this beautiful walkable community that, that we're planning here, that, that that will create a market. And, you know, we do have a bit of a, a theory of change within, within the firm that if you, if you come in uh, to a, an, an area that's, that's had disinvestment for a long period of time at scale with a mixed income program, that will create the market to then be able to bring in um, some some more uh, reachable, if you will, affordable, not necessarily by income restriction, but but more affordable for sale. And then you get the rooftops there, 
and then that's able to bring in more neighborhood serving retail and then all of a sudden it's a place where everyone wants to live and the the, the more kind of high-end luxury stuff comes in behind it but you've preserved affordability you've kept a place where this this neighborhood that's changing or gentrifying where people of all incomes can stay then you have this comprehensive neighborhood mixed income neighborhood that works for for all income levels and uh, we, we truly believe that the bones of this neighborhood with the infrastructure improvements that that are planned uh, will be able to create that environment sure hope you're right Seem to have covered all the bases. The team has done a very good job. I was in St. Louis when Pruitt Igo was demolished. Interesting. Uh, yeah. So I like these best practices much better than what was considered to be best practice in 1970. Right. Um, so, in the interest of that, I'm going to move staff recommendation. Second. We have. Was that 13 seconds? Yes, it was. <laughs> we have a motion from Commissioner Kaufman, a second from Commissioner Wong Connolly. Uh, before we, we call the vote, I, I just want to uh, applaud the, the team at SHRA, the city staff, the development team working together. We saw from a previous item, the entertainment, how uh, the collaborative the, the, the staff of the city was, and seeing various uh, government agencies collaborate <coughs> is also always a good thing. Um, I know this is not before us, but the relocation is is something that I would imagine a lot of people are concerned about, and uh, definitely want to encourage SRHA and everyone to work on that, um, especially the one-to-one -one replacement and people with school kids and other life factors. So, uh, but before I go to vote, I see we have two more comments and questions from uh, Chairman Emeritus Bodipa Mimba. I'll be very brief. I just want to thank the Dream Team, uh, Mr. Williams, Mr. Ross. I know that you guys in your entire team behind you um, have have come before us with the concept early and have brought it home with an amazing plan and put together truly an amazing team. I'm excited to see what, what's to come. And uh, I'll be right in line with the individuals coming back home when that ground breaking is done. Thank you, Chairman Emeritus. Vice Chair Lucian. Thank you, Mr. Chair. I'll be really brief. Um, as it relates to the um, relocation plan and, and some of the comments that have been made about just the, the general uncertainty coming from the federal level and, um, you know, perhaps um, not a the project may not receiving perhaps the level of support that you would hope for uh, uh, our, and I say this, half-jokingly or jokingly beloved uh, secretary, uh, Mr. Carson. Um, <clears throat> I, I think it, I, 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 I'm not going to hold up the process with it now, but I think we, I think before this project is ultimately approved, um, perhaps at the next level, that it probably do well to consider uh, embodying some of the key um, provisions um, uh, or consider it if it's if it's feasible if it's appropriate uh, provisions of the relocation plan um, as conditions of the project um, and certainly as well I think with with our goal of mixed income communities and and 
and whatnot. Um, further consideration given to really trying to um, hold the applicant's feet to the fire to really try and diversify those those product types uh, under the same roof. And that's all I have. Thank you, Mr. Vice Chair. Uh, Commissioner Fossil. Two quick questions for staff, just on procedure. So the action we take tonight is final unless it's appealed to the City Council, but it doesn't have to go to the City Council, right? That's correct. But the relocation plan is a separate item that's going to be discussed by the City Council in August. Yes. Thanks. Thank you, Commissioner LaFosso. Commissioner Colville. I just want to say I, I think you folks have a great plan. You obviously have worked on it a long time, and I think you've brought in the right team, and I have the utmost confidence that at least in these first two phases that this is, this is going to happen. And I think you've done a great job, and I applaud you. Thank you, in fact. Thank you, Commissioner Colville. I, I echo that sentiment as well. And when you get to the council, definitely work on the relocation plan and, and take all the comments here uh, and work with our staff on that. Thank you. Ms. Cosgrove. Commissioner Bodipo member. Aye. LaFosso. Aye. Coville. Aye. Hoffman. Aye. Lindsay. Aye. Farrell. Aye. Buckingham. Aye. Rogers. Aye. Juan Connolly? Aye. E? Aye. Ogilvie? Aye. Vice Chair Lucian? Aye. Chair Burke? Aye. Motion passes. Congratulations. Next, we go to uh, public comments matters. We're going to close public comment. Uh, member comments, ideas, questions, meeting reports? Seeing none, uh, we'll adjourn. I'd like to take the, the opportunity to adjourn a member of uh, former councilwoman, the late Bonnie Pinnell, who served the city uh, for numerous years and was a stalwart community uh, leader. With that, we're adjourned. <laughs>